All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What's happening? I'm Mark Maron. This is my podcast, WTF. Welcome to it. How you doing? You losing sleep like everyone should be? Are you? Are you? Is your conscience weighing heavy on you as it should be? It's, it's difficult, you know. It, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. How are you? Everything okay in the car? Everything okay with the kids? Everything okay at work? Is it? How's it going on the treadmill? You doing all right? How's that walk? How's your dog? That's a nice looking dog. Hope everything's okay. Did everything turn out all right at the thing? All right. Just checking in with as many people as I can. Is your eye okay? Is your ear okay? Is your fingers okay? That thing with your stomach work out? Uh, how's that foot? Your foot all right? How's the toe? Did that? It's, it wasn't that bad, right? You, you know, you're asleep for most of it, right? And you don't even feel what's happening. It's, it, it, it's, you'd think it'd be embarrassing, but you, know, you don't feel it and you don't know what's happening. But it, it was clear? Good. How's everyone doing? Should I start again? Are we Okay. Today on the show, the author of Robin, the biography of Robin Williams, Dave Itzkoff, is here. Uh, We had a great chat, mostly about Robin Williams, and we thought it would be good to play the full interview um, with Robin that we did in 2010 after the discussion in its entirety. So we're going to do that. Thank you for donating to Riasis, which is how you pronounce it, apparently. Uh, You can still uh, donate to help out uh, with legal representation and and bond uh, for immigrants who are immigrant families who have been separated, uh, deported, and whatnot. You can always give to the ACLU as well. Always a good uh, charitable donation. ACLU is one of the organizations that is keeping this country a democracy. By By the skin of its teeth. So... Uh, I'm going to talk to David Scoff. He's the culture reporter for the New York Times, and he's on the show to talk about his biography of Robin Williams called Robin, uh, which I read, which was great. I read most of it at, at the time that I talked to him. I, I'm very good at re- almost finishing books before I, I talk to people who wrote them. But I want to make, uh, make it clear again that after the interview, we're going to play the full interview I had with Robin Williams back in 2010. Since many of you have never heard it, and some of you might want to hear it again after listening to Dave uh, and myself talk about it, we figured it's best to just post it here rather than make you go pay for our premium archives or go hunt for a bootleg version. So first, me and Dave talking about Robin and a lot more, uh, and then a full Robin interview from 2010. This is me and Dave Itzkoff. What, did you rent a car? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I was in the Bay Area at the start of the week, then came down to, uh, as like thir- first thing Thursday morning, I came down to Burbank, uh-huh. do some stuff out there, and yeah, just rented a car out there and been driving around. So the Bay Area, like, so that's a Robin land. Yeah, that's why we did it there, yeah. What'd you do? Uh, I did, it, I made a bunch of radio stuff, but then I was also doing uh, like live events, in-store appearances and other places. In, like the first one was in Court of Madera, which uh-huh. is like, you know, just outside Tiburon. His old high school was like literally like walking distance and, from that store. And what were the crowds like? Did they were were they robbing people? Yeah, yeah, that was what like was packed like, out kind of deal or what? Uh, no, I mean they were very very nice. Yeah. Like people, not uh, people who 
not that they knew him personally, but they all had encountered him in their daily lives over the years. Like one woman whose daughter had gone to ballet class with his daughter back in the day. Yeah. Like those kinds of connections. Right. But all like extremely... Uh, uh, not, they, they have a, they have a sense of like ownership of him, but they you know they loved him and yeah. they really like appreciated what he brought to their yeah. communities. Yeah, you know, sure, man. I mean, I I guess I was at that last Tiburon house. Yeah, I, I don't know if you'll remember. I mean, we we because we had a conversation. Me and you. Yeah, we talked. I wound up using more of the stuff that you told me. I think about the. Uh, the Throckmorton theater scene there, but we did talk about your uh, interview. When he was up in the balcony? Yeah, Ooh. yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, no, you, uh, you, you know, I, 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 I imagine we'll get into it in yeah, some way, but you sure. certainly caught him you know, in that same period of time. Yeah, oh yeah. You know, what was interesting, what I'm getting around to, and, and sure. that I think I can, you know, reveal now is that when I spent that, that day with Robin or that hour or two, yeah. which I think, you know, seems to be, uh, one of the few candid conversations that exists in a public sphere with him. Yeah. Uh, you know, outside of him ruminating and, and riffing on suicide, which oddly, Jonathan Winters did too in my interview with him. Oh, man. Uh, I wish I'd, I wish I had looked that up because that's, I mean, that's a little, a little eerie. I mean, he definitely, you know, Winters was uh, a wounded figure too. And, you know, he- That was he, a great, uh, quite a day, dude. Wow, I'll definitely look that up. That's extraordinary. Well, it was like he was riffing about therapy uh, and about yeah. the, you know, sort of like he was sort of a uh, oddly conservative in some ways. Yeah, and uh, you know he, you know, uh, you know he had a th- in his riff it was a therapist telling the the patient to go put a gun in his mouth or wow. go like some, you know, like wow, it was different. But it came around the same time in the interview that as as the one that I did with Robin, it was very bizarre. Wow. But uh, but the the other thing about Robin is that you know. We had to jump through a lot of hoops to talk to him, I'm you know, sure. primarily because of how insulated his people kept him because of this, of what you tracked and what tracks as the, the, the thing with Disney and about how people use his image and stuff to promote. Yeah. It seemed to be their primary concern that there was a window to this thing and that it would only be used in a certain oh, way. Oh, interesting. I could see that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they, they just, you know, his managers were, I mean, just in general, I think so. I mean, you know, they understood on some level that, or they treated him, I think, uh, like a commodity, you know, that like- they, he, Yeah, and that, that seems like in the book that he's pretty pissed off about Disney using the Aladdin in the many ways that they did outside of the parameters of yeah, his deal with them. And that's, I mean, that's a rare instance of at least, a you know, a public situation where he really kind of pushed back against that or even- displayed any kind of disappointment or anger in that way but I, I there was a lot of certainly in those last few years of his career i mean a lot there was a lot more protectiveness than perhaps there needed to be or a lot less risk taking i you know the, i mean so much about uh the business and the culture had changed and and you know he could have stand to take even more chances. I thought. I thought it was really interesting when he did uh, set that sort of you know that Broadway play that was sadly short lived, the one uh, Bengal Tiger at the Baghdad Zoo. But that was such a great performance and a perfect role for him. And he really could have done more stuff like that. that sure. That, well, I mean, it seemed like he did it in the smaller movies. But the the thing that struck me when I was in Tiburon at the house outside of the fact that we couldn't take a picture or anybody could sort of identify where we were. Oh. oh. So we did, we had, uh, Rebecca took a picture of us. Right, right. But the thing I'm getting at was that there was a room in Robin's house where I was getting ready to leave after we talked. He's like, oh, come here, I want to show you something. You know, and uh, I'm like, all right. And he's like, you can't tell anybody about this, you know, in his Robin voice, which I can only do occasionally. (laughs) Ooh. Uh, So... 
So he brings me to this room, and in this room are the soldiers. Yeah, yeah. And they're like they're they're all equally spaced. There's no clutter to it. They're the same type, same size, which is kind of larger than a GI Joe in my recollection. Okay. But they were like sort of like these meticulously done yeah. toy soldiers yeah. that were about like in my mind foot foot and a half tall. Is that right? Yeah, you know? that could be. I mean, I, you know, I don't know what he had other than like inventories that I've seen in like some of the legal papers. I don't I don't know like the exact quantity or you know the inventory that he had at it that seemed point, like a very specific style plausible. and of the same manufacturer okay you know and they're all set up in this room right. almost museum like that could be yeah and he was like don't tell anybody about this i'm like oh, this, wow. this is the big secret <laughs> <laughs> this is the thing you're hiding from everybody is this room full of toy soldiers right, right. maybe i maybe i was a i didn't know enough about them to make a judgment they were just they look like <laughs> You know, a bunch yeah, of uh, scale models. Right. Almost. I didn't think it was that big of a secret that, you know, he was a big aficionado of yeah. that sort of thing. That's, yeah, that's I, funny. Yeah, no, he he made, kind of swore me to secrecy on that. Right. <laughs> Everything that you went through in that yeah. day and that experience, and that's the thing. Yeah, he that came he, clean about joke stealing, about right. relapsing, about suicidal thoughts, about right. his heart. But uh, don't tell anybody about the soldier. Yeah. <laughs> It's going to stay between us, man. Right. Well, you did keep the secret. I so. did till uh, now. But right. now after I read the book, it's like, oh, clearly I'm an idiot. I, right. All he talked about was fucking toy soldiers. His whole life was toy soldiers. It is an important thread. Though. Yeah. I mean, clearly. But that's- Well, that's, yeah, because you sort of track it, to, uh, I think rightfully so, to the unleashing of his imagination as a lonely kid. Yeah. I think you know, in was... an attic with these, with enough money to have- fully full armies yeah, to riff yeah. with well it literally like the first the friends the friends i could find who knew him the furthest back i mean the ones from like middle school even they are like the things they would tell me like they marveled at the fact that like that was an era when the kids all had like the little yeah, cheap yeah. plastic ones yeah and what they remembered is that he was the kid that had like the good metal yeah soldiers like that's he was well off enough that his parents could get that for him and that that made him stand out that distinguished yeah him. a couple of people remembered it yeah. so let me ask you this though you know before we embark oh, yeah, on uh, uh on some of the stuff i'm sure. curious about is that you know why why this subject matter number one and you know what, what i know what compelled me it wasn't um just because he was a comic and i was doing comedy i had a reason right my reason was that I literally, no matter how I felt about him as a comic coming up, sure. you know, which for my generation was is relatively dismissive, you know, in the sense that you know he, you know, he was very specific. He was always it was he was always unto himself. But whether it was for joke stealing or right. or or um, fake improv or whatever it was, you know, there was something saccharine. Yeah, and and there was a, not it wasn't so much that there wasn't love for him. There was just sort of like the Robin, you know. Sure. But I got mad when the generation below mine, these twenty-year-olds, were dismissing him. I'm like, look, we knew exactly. <laughs> we, we had a, we earned our right. Well, to well, do well that. at least we took into mind that he yeah. achieved anything and everything a comic would want to do. Right. You know, whether we liked him or not wasn't the point. There was a respect for his achievement. He was, you know, he started out as a comic and did everything any comic wanted to do. Yeah. At least somewhat. So who are you to condescend? Like my my compulsion was to make sure that you know that he got the respect that he deserved right now i that was my intent you know and I, outside of like i didn't know what i would get out of him right i had no anticipation no of anything. no you could but have I, gone in knowing that it would be the conversation that you had sure well i was lucky and i think you made a point in here and i don't know who said it i don't know if it was you or somebody else in the book that like if there's more than one person there he's gonna put on a show yeah if it's really if it's two people you're fucked 
But the fact that there was nobody around, which I don't think happened very often. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there was no reason to entertain. Right. And also because I was a comic and yes. he did like me and he knew me a bit. Yeah. But what was your reason? It's funny because I, I it almost parallels yours. I, I obviously, I didn't experience him the way that a, a fellow comedian would. I, I'm not a performer. I have no yeah. desire to be. But I also had an experience that was somewhat akin to yours because I had written about him the year earlier and yeah. I had spent time with him on the road when he was restarting that Weapons of Self-Destruction tour. Yeah. And so in the background were a lot of the same things that you dealt with in your conversation, the uh, the relapse into alcoholism, the rehab, yeah. the divorce, uh, the heart problems. And all I knew for the most part about him at that point was what everybody thinks they know is yeah. his body of work. And I was a little wary only because these are very like sensitive things to have to bring up to somebody. Yeah. Celebrities in particular are kind of guarded people. But this was in the interview. Yeah. yeah. That, literally, like, I, I had spoken to him once before because I wrote a piece about um, World's Greatest Dad, really more of a profile of Bobcat. Yeah. And I thought that was a terrific film. And of course, you know, he was a voice in, in that piece. And yeah. even in that, that was just a phone conversation, but I just remember how kind of subdued he was and very relatively easy to talk to. And yeah. that did not jibe with my expectation or what I thought he would be. Mm -hmm. And then in the course of these conversations on this larger story, everything came out of him. I mean, he, you could just kind of, all you had to do was kind of scratch the surface and just this uh, outpouring of uh, maybe not emotion, but just honesty and yeah. candor about, yeah. uh, we definitely didn't talk about uh, suicide and certainly right. not in the way that, that you did with him, yeah. but all the other things. And I, I think a very clear understanding on his part of or at least his his feeling that you know he'd really hurt and wounded people with his behavior when he was getting drunk again. Yeah, the real desire to want to be sober, the commitment to that. Uh, so just the fact that he was so open about himself, yeah. really just put himself on the table. That surprised you, yeah. Because and so and that compelled you to or or, or made you assume and believe that there was more to this guy than you assumed. Yes, that that uh, and and again even you know. We were one on one, and he uh, would still occasionally, you know, throw out a voice, right. uh, it just passingly. Sure, like, but oh, it's it's only got one place to land. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, and right, he's doing it. You know, he wants to get. He still wants to get the laugh out yeah. of you. He's putting himself at ease a little bit because you're unfamiliar to him, yeah. and that's a way for him to make himself comfortable. That was all interesting. Uh, I tell the story in the book, but also in the course of working on this story. And this wasn't meant for consumption in, in that article. He wasn't like trying to butter me up. But then, you know, just in our chit chat, I mentioned to him that we both, we discovered that we were both big comic book fans, right. collectors. Yeah. And I mentioned the store that I like to go shopping at in New York. And he's like, oh, I go there. The next time I'm in New York, well, maybe we'll go there. And yeah. like, it's like one of those things that like celebrities just say to yeah. you when you're writing about them. It's like... They don't really mean that. That's never going to yeah. happen. They're just trying to, you know, make you write nice things about them. But then he actually did. Like yeah. a few <laughs> weeks later, and the story wasn't done. He called me up. He was in New York, I think, to see Zach and yeah. maybe do some other stuff. And he, we went shopping, and it was a really, I mean, it was just a nice thing to do. And I later discovered that, of course, he did lots of generous things like that for people. Things that were easy for him to do that were very meaningful to the other people. Um, but also just to see how people reacted to him in a 
just a public setting where he's totally unguarded, unprotected, yeah. and the uh, you know the way people's jaws just drop to encounter him like that. That that it was very. Uh, I'm not saying that that's the sole reason I wanted to do it, but that experience was was memorable. Yeah, because uh, yeah, there's that fine line between you know, but I don't think that he. I think he's he definitely is on the other side of it, but there is a line between, yeah. you know, is this generosity coming from a, con- you know, a, a, a different manifestation of the need for sure. recognition and it, attention. It could be. And to be thought of in a certain way. But I don't know. I, I think he was he, he, generous. And I, and yeah. I, and that was the, 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 the few times that, that I hung out with him or met him, you know, it was weird, you know, it was just because you're sitting there at the comedy cell or whatever, he'd show up. And yeah. yeah, I can't remember the first time I met him, but I remember, like he took some interest in my one man show. I don't know why, oh, huh. but I I just remember one time like in New York when I lived there, I got a message like Mark is Mark. This is Robin. I can't do his voice, but <laughs> hello, Mark. It's Robin. You know, like uh, right. you know, and he started talking. He said you should uh, we should talk about your one person show and making it. In. And I'm like, what's happening? You know, and then yeah. I try and he didn't leave a number or nothing. And I ended up calling uh, Shapiro, and he's like, what? <laughs> he called you? I don't know. You know and it just fucking went nowhere, but. Right. <laughs> But you know, after all was said and done, I was happy he had my number and he sure. gave me a call. And I, I think we he'd left me another message once before about something. But you know, to sit with him, his real self was clearly a shy, yeah. unassuming person. Yes, and like being a, a, a product of de- of a depressive. You know, I if I think back on it. Yeah, you know, it, it was always sort of there. I could uh, there was a nag of it there. Yeah, yeah. I think it, it, not to pat myself on the back too much or plug myself, but to even start to really learn the some of the facts about his upbringing and his childhood and yeah. his parents. And you, I think it's like the Rosetta Stone that you you really understand once you once you see who his parents were. It's like a mathematical equation. It's like you put those two together, and of course, the outcome is going to be. A child and a person like Robin, right? Who, on the one hand, gets a lot of the uh, exuberance of his mother and the humor yeah. from her, but also the the lack of attention from both of them, or at least what he perceived as a lack of attention, right? And then that sort of like introdu- being introduced to these half brothers. Yeah, I found that what was um, interesting was how he came to it. That it's like I couldn't help but after reading it that there is some out. El- that they, that he he seemed almost like he was on the the more sort of more enlightened part of the spectrum somewhere. Yeah, but I don't know that he was ever diagnosed with that. But it just oh, seems, you, yeah. you know what I mean? I like, don't know. It's, it's just something. Just kind of, I don't know. He was just like so attuned to things, kind of touched. Yeah, and even in the way, you know, uh, you know. Again, I'm going to plug myself, but like in the book, the stories that some of his friends tell about their experiences right when he died and the way that they kind of felt like the universe was communicating to them in different ways like Jeff Bridges running into Radio Man at the premiere for his new movie and thinking that he sees Robin or you know Terry Gilliam being in London and watching that Family Guy episode that was actually pretty nasty to Robin right but all these little things you know just kind of being it's it's just a it's just a weird it's a weird thing. This, I, you know, somebody who is just a, a little bit more sort of tapped into how things work and how people work than uh, m- most of the population. Well, I think the the big thing about when he died and how he died. Sure. The idea of not having him on the planet was a problem yeah. for me. You, yeah. you know, and it was a sad blow. 
but it not nothing surprises me necessarily. I mean, I I think that you know when the when the world's clown kills himself, that it does have bigger implications than uh, than than just a guy killing himself. But but I think the one thing none of us knew was how long he was sick yeah. and just how sick he was. Yeah. And and you know I talked to Bobcat, oh. who was you know after the fact, yeah. who was yeah. cagey about it. It's like well uh, people don't really know yeah. what was happening. Yeah. And but you really tell what was happening. Well, because it came out in his autopsy and because other people did eventually. No, but like yeah. what I'm saying that oh, yeah. people around him oh, yeah. it seems that for at least a year they watched him they they didn't know what was happening, but yeah. he was he was coming unhinged and physically and mentally. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I with somebody who's had a history of drug use, you know, you just assume like the oh, fuck but like no one knew that he had this mental sickness. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, just to I mean to back up just to the you know, the circumstances of his death or, or the world learning about his death and it did lead to a kind of mythologizing of that too or the the, the fact that everybody's kind of first instinct is like you, you know, the cliche of the sad clown or the you know. Right. And there's an aspect to it, but we don't really even know how conscious of a decision it was on on his part, and in terms of how delusional he was, it's possible. I uh-huh. mean, there are, there are people that I spoke to. Uh, you know, Dana Carvey told me that story about running into him at the Throckmorton a few weeks prior, and really feeling like Robin was trying to kind of you made an amends for joke stealing. Yeah, kind of a settling of accounts. There right. are people who do feel it's also part of sobriety, though. Oh, that's true. That's true, but uh, Billy Crystal, I think, also. I mean, that doesn't he doesn't have an equivalent experience, but also sort of alludes to the idea of you oh. know he, the, you know yeah that, 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 that there was a was, conscious well, decision, well, yeah, that, but but, but we don't but we don't know that we can't oh that that would have implied foresight to yeah right yeah. right oh, uh, but right. then there's also the the sort of at least you know according to the police report like they searched his computer they did not find like Google searches of. Methods of suicide, for example, there was no evidence of suicidal right. ideation as yeah. far as they could find, which is unusual. It's not; it doesn't preclude anything, but unusual. So there's evidence I, either way, I suppose. But the idea—I mean, people's—I think first, first uh, sort of instincts or assumptions before we knew anything was this was a guy who was somehow. Uh, upset about wherever he was in life, the state of his career, maybe financial trouble, maybe just all, you know, far out speculation and therefore he did X. And then I think the conversation kind of evolved to a conversation about mental health and awareness and and how you can reach out to people who may be having problems of of that nature. And it's... I'm sure it was a very helpful conversation for people, but I don't know that it quite described what Robin. Well, yeah, was because the last part of the puzzle was Parkinson's, right? Or well, then right. A week later after his death, a statement comes out that he'd been recently diagnosed with Parkinson's, which he had, and in his own lifetime, he was given a diagnosis of Parkinson's. Yeah, but it sounds like to me that you know I don't know when that timeline starts on him mm-hmm. as physical manifestations that initially were dismissed as. Uh, hypochondriacal or anxiety right. based, right? You know, but some of them sound fairly dramatic. Uh, you know how long that was going on? That, that it, you can sort of backload those were symptoms, and yeah. that he was, yeah, it wasn't cocaine, it wasn't alcohol that was, you know, f- fueling these paranoid, you know, flights of delusion. No, no, but it That's, was the sickness. But I think even even 
when the statement about the Parkinson's diagnosis, you know, came out, when that was made public, I think it's still, I can't speak for everybody, but I think it still steered people in the direction or the assumption that, okay, he he knew or had learned he had something that was going to be degenerative and progressive yeah. and 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 so again that that he made a kind of active choice so that he wouldn't you know suffer over a long period of time that he made this choice to end his life and again i don't i don't want to say definitely yes i don't want to say definitely yeah. no because i don't i don't know but i don't i don't think there's you know it it there's a difference of course between louis body and and parkinson's and that's something that wasn't learned until many months later and i just wonder if you know, What's Lewy body? So that is akin to Parkinson's in that both of those diseases come from uh, a buildup of protein in the brain, which is normally made in you know normal quantities, yeah. us- useful, but in excess it becomes toxic. So yeah. with Parkinson's, that primarily is attacking the the motor part of your brain. Yeah. So that's why people with Parkinson's they you know they'll may have stooped posture yeah. or other movement problems. Uh-huh. This what they call you know clockwork rigidity. Yeah. The limbs kind of stop in certain places. Lewy body goes on to attack other parts of the brain that have to do with cognition, uh-huh. reasoning, and yeah. and how you just even perceive stimuli and information. So the people who have that, they can have severe anxiety that basically becomes paranoia. Right. Uh, they can have wild mood swings, drastic yeah. mood swings. Uh, they may ha- they can have memory problems. Right. Another common symptom of it is that the person will seem to kind of shut down in their own body. Right. They won't react to things. Yeah. You can see that a kind of a light is on, but they're, they can go for minutes or hours just not reacting to anything. So those are all sort of separate from right. what a, a Parkinson's uh, right. patient might So have. there was a thought that he might have had that? Oh, he definitely had Lewy body. I mean, oh. or I should say... In in his autopsy, I mean, they they analyzed uh, brain tissue and they found uh, those proteins and uh-huh. they found it in the parts of the brain or you know that that basically are consistent with Louis Body and people who knew him, spent time with him, or encountered him in those last weeks and months certainly describe sure. symptoms yeah, like, sounds like it. consistent with yeah. that. Uh, so and again another of the symptoms or you know not some people who have Louis body experience hallucinations yeah. and delusions so that's why i say you know we can't know oh, exactly yeah, yeah where the impulse came from yeah, yeah. what he was if, if yeah but you know you, you know it's one of those things sure. right like where where whether you know that or not there's a logic to it you know as somebody you know there there you know there's two types of people in the world there's a or there's more than two but <laughs> but you know the the kind of person who who thinks that holding on to life no matter what yeah you know and certainly you know in the in the book you talk about his relationship with Christopher Reeve you know you know helping him you know being there right after the horrible accident when yeah. he's paralyzed and and really being a, a a very available support system for a guy that you know was you know couldn't feel anything below his neck yeah. but but persisted with life yes obviously you, you're going to need help if you're him to kill yourself yeah. so you know what he thought in his dark but he seemed to be a very proactive and sort of like i'm going to live this out and but you know the, there are those people and then there are the people that are sort of like i don't want to go down like that yeah well i, I mean let me just preface it by saying, you know, I just I just don't want to sort of put my finger on one side of the scale or the other too much because I, to me I think it's I, I think the fact the factual record is ambiguous. Sure. But now I'm going to contradict my own sort of preamble by saying if you look I think if you look at his body of work, 
you there especially now it, it, there's this recurring theme yeah. of his him expressing a fear about what's going to happen to me later in my life when i get older on the one hand the fear that uh, I'm going to squander my career or my fans are going to desert me. And or... that stuck with him forever. Yes. So there's that aspect. After and... like he'd done everything. Yeah. And there is also the the fear of what is going to happen to my body or what's going to, what could ha- what would happen to me if I started to experience something that was right. degenerative and right. incurable. And it you know it crops up in if you go I mean even going all the way back to his stand up routines from you know the Roxy in the yeah. late seventies. Right. Those you can see the that that through line. Right, the old man stuff. Exactly. No, yeah, and I thought that was great that you were able to sort of seek some of that stuff out and talk about, you know, how like uh I, I don't remember who was talking about seeing that improvisation where he did the old Robin and then a- ended up trimming it up. I, was it Pryor uh, who saw that the one manifestation of it, which was more theatrical? Was I, I talked about that myself a little bit, that when he does it like in the Roxy special and that it's pretty clearly supposed to be him as an old man. It's, but wasn't there one where- it, Well, where, later when he does it, when when you get, by the time you get to reality, what a concept, yeah. the, the, his yeah. first album, by that point, it it's no longer meant to be him. The character has a name. He's much more kind of uh, leering and sexual and full of you know, yeah. innuendos. That aspect of his, is kind of drowned out. Well, I think that was interesting too about tracking, you know, you know, obviously throughout the, the book, you, you feel that there's nobody like Robin Williams in terms of how his brain works, how he, you know, figured out how to piece together these these bits and pieces into, you know, sometimes improv, sometimes seemingly improv, right. but that, you know, there no segues and, you know, the, the sort of rapid fire and that he was very quick, but also you're not, you, you don't dismiss the idea that a lot of his shit was repetitive and some of it was broad and some of the stereotypical voices were, you know, dubious on some level. Yeah, they, some of that stuff. I, I mean, there's it, I, it's interesting to know why he likely had a fascination with Jews yeah. or with people of color, minority groups, uh, gays, uh, and but certainly that material did not age especially well. Yeah, but you don't, you know, but you don't take, uh, you can't deny the, the the what what kind of moves through the whole book and and even in your prose to a certain degree is this persistence and the energy yeah. of 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 sort of of creating in the moment yeah you, you know yeah. and also just his sort of dynamic control of stage presence and that you know that there that his presence in general uh was was sort of you know had to be reckoned with once he took a stage yeah it was kind of euphoric as or i guess somebody somebody else used the word ecstatic but i think i think that that's true that- yeah and for someone like me you know maybe someone like overton or bobby or yeah. you know these other cats that you talked to that knew him back then yeah like i didn't know him back then sure. and, and and if you watch something even if you watch live at the roxy you do have that mediated distance that you could sort of go like why does he why is he climbing up that you know sort of, <laughs> but you, you know what i mean yeah but, when he's like climbing into the balcony right yeah but but to, martin short used to do the greatest impression of him <laughs> did, did you ever see that old sctv impression is it is it is it scathing or is, is it well, not, no, no, it's oh, okay. very on the money. Oh, okay. But which you know, but just by virtue of that, just by virtue of it not being Robin, right. could appear scathing. Right. I see. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because there's a ridiculousness to it. Sure. But they were obviously uh, good friends. Yeah. But uh, yeah. but like, what I'm saying is, had I been there, what would that have felt like? 
you know, as a comic saying like, no, look at this fucking guy. I mean, yeah. what I've responded, as you say in the book, that, uh, you know, that uh, Letterman and, yeah, and I, uh, who was it, Larry Miller? Yeah. Were like, I, oh, I guess it's over. I guess yeah, whatever I, we're doing. I thought that was extraordinary for right. somebody as clearly as talented as Letterman was. You know, he's showing up in town from Indiana and kicking The comedy his, store. Yeah, he's kicking off his career and yeah. clearly, a, you know, a, a talent of his own and seeing what Robin is doing and just feeling like, what if this is where comedy is going, what it, what is there for me? I, I, I got to pack it in. That's right, but that's such a comic <laughs> point of view. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that, that, there, that, that, that there's, a, there's a singularity yeah. of where comedy's going. Like, right. you, know, <laughs> you know, like all of a sudden the, the existence of a Robin means that there's no reason for us to right. exist. Right, but I think it does also point to, and, and, and Robin fell victim to this himself with that, Jim Carrey he yeah. said in the book uh, and uh, definitely with Carrey and even before Carrey with, with Eddie Murphy that you know the the perception that it's this is all a zero sum game and if somebody is in ascendance somebody else has to be in decline but, and most likely the person in decline is me yeah, but like it's 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 zero sum game at a certain level with five guys at any one time. <laughs> That's true. You, you know, they, right. they, what about the other thousand? <laughs> or what about the other thirty that are that are equally as famous, but not that? Right. Like the idea right. that there's a king, you, yeah. you know, and that that yeah. that king will be eventually usurped or 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 forgotten or or. Well, I think he. Ha- but I think Robin. No, but I had, think it's true to yeah, some degree. I think he had some you know firsthand experience, like reason to believe that. I think particularly because of the experience of Mork and. Mindy and how fast the kind of bottom fell out on that. I didn't that. realize that. See, all this stuff yeah. in the book about how, like, you know, the, his, the critical reaction to him and also the sort of, you know, things that he did that were not great and also, you know, just the fact that Mork and Mindy didn't even last long enough to be syndicated, right. whether it would have survived that anyways, that, like, you know, he, he it seems that really throughout his career, in, in terms of how I read what you wrote, is that, you know... It, the the good stuff that was said about him was far outnumbered by the shitty stuff that was said about him critically uh, later on yeah i mean certainly the 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 ratio the balance gets all out of whack but if you go back and look at certainly even the initial response to to mork and mindy is just uh, this outpouring of i mean people immediately declaring him this guy is the funniest guy on tv this is the best news show of the season right it's a huge and the numbers bear that out that it's an Im- immediate uh top five hit well i think that what's interesting is that you know it co- becomes clear from uh from from the book that you know once show business discovered him they're like now we got a cash cow here yeah and you know and that you know everybody in this town in los angeles is like this guy is a singular talent and no one's seen anything like it yeah and then like but but was sort of scary to me to see to read like just how easy it turns man and yeah. just and and how there were forces out to you know not intentionally take him down they a lot of them coming from within him sure but but you know yet you know once you are at, are at that level of the game, yeah. the the sort of uh, expectation to perform is, yeah. is is overwhelming. Yeah. Well, there's so much serendipity involved, even in him getting cast as Mork the first time on Happy Days, and all the people that have to pass on the role. They're trying to get Jonathan Winters. They're trying to get uh, John Biner. Uh, you know, people of uh, people who are real sort of first tier comedians at that time Dom DeLuise who just either passed or weren't available and they have to basically do a kind of uh, fire sale mass audition to just get to him and to do to to create to to sort of like you know deal with bringing new life into a show that's jumped the shark literally literally that was was the season of the jump the shark episode (laughs) exactly and so all and and then 
the episode doing pretty well and and Gary Marshall kind of on uh, you know basically making the, sh- the Mork and Mindy up out of thin air because ABC is just hungry for new shows and doesn't feel like they have anything better yeah. to go with that season so all of that wonderful kind of happenstance working in Robin's favor and then basically the very next season all these other forces as, as you mentioned they move the time slot they try to put it up against Archie Bunker's place which is a huge mess they try to sort of move it away from the kind of family orientation, yeah. make it more of a TNA type of show. So almost within, you know, the very next year, it's already sort of running out of gas. And understandably so, really. Yeah. When they, you know, when you really frame it up like you did, yeah. it's like where are you going to go with that premise? Right. And they they tried to sort of get back to basics in the fourth season, but by then, really, the writing was on the wall. That was the year that they finally brought Winters in as a cast member to play Mirth, their, with that, their which kid. was like great for Robin and Jonathan. Yeah, it was fun for them, and I think gave Robin. It wasn't his idea, but gave him some incentive to kind of just ride it out, uh, whatever it became. But I think the the large lesson that he took from that experience was that this could all go away in a minute and it's probably going to that something's whether by your control or not you're going to lose it all at some point he did in a way that 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 the pressure was all was always on him like you don't get see like you know if you're operating it if you're like the funniest guy in the world or you're a singular talent that no one's ever seen before and it's in comedy it's a lot of pressure because it just doesn't happen that often yeah and and to hold that but like actors can go forever you know i mean they can do bad movies and still be movie stars comedians it's harder yeah and especially someone who's trying to straddle what he's trying to straddle but i also like how in the book you really talk about him as a young man being a guy that comes from money but never having money you know never having anything in his pockets being kind of smelly <laughs> not changing his pants or his shirt you know running around in suspenders his hairy man like the you know, the the constant reference to how hairy he is throughout the book is sort of you, you know it's an important theme i, no, I think it is <laughs> I, i'm not uh, diminishing it but like you do give a very good portrait of of who he was as a young talent as a young comic and sort of the you know being a comic you know knowing that energy of you know running around doing all these sets how Mitzi reacted to him at the store and but I just really thought you know you you sort of really put into perspective you know that part of his life I appreciate that I, yeah I, I mean I think also what's interesting is uh, understandably we've talked about the sort of comedy portion of his life that strain yeah. of his career but that I think the comedy was something he kind of fell backwards into that he really uh, wanted the 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 sincere passion of his was was acting and that's what he trained in and that's what he studied uh at three different colleges including Juilliard and then only ended up in comedy because he dropped out of Juilliard and came back to San Francisco at a time when comedy was happening again and a different kind of comedy that that suited him well but yeah it seemed that that though he may have wanted to be an actor and in your telling of it which it sounds right to me that that the constraints of a role that he couldn't completely turn inside out on his own volition, you know, just shy of of rewriting it, yeah. was not that satisfying to him. No, I mean, certainly it's something that he uh, bumps up against in his very first couple of film roles in, in Popeye and in the world carding to Garp that, you know, his first two directors are Robert Altman and George Roy Hill, who are obviously not going to let him dick around. But also both doing something they had not done before. Yeah. As directors. Right. You know, Altman kind of, uh, you know, I 
for for different reasons. It was a really out of character movie for him, <laughs> and you know he wasn't the first choice to direct it. No, and no. he hadn't handled a movie like that before. I didn't know any of that. Yeah, I mean it's wild to think that. I mean, of course, first of all, you know it's it's Robert Evans, you know, producing it and uh, assembling this whole thing and wanting Dustin Hoffman to play Popeye, but also, uh, you know. Uh, wanting uh if he could have gotten you know john schlesinger to make it that was that was a choice of his or uh, yeah really yeah yeah uh, <laughs> i mean who knows how much of it is uh, evans just kind of putting these names out into the universe and just hoping like just by saying it that it's going jacked to, up evans yeah. coked up <laughs> like god forbid like you the, the, that the hollywood wonder kind producer wouldn't bring in like you know a uh, minnelli or somebody right. <laughs> not liza her dad what was right. his name v- was still vicente. alive vicente yeah. might have been still around why not bring an actual musical director and you know, resurrect <laughs> you know you can have like these uh rebels yeah hal ashby yeah that would so have been you, something but maybe yeah uh, i don't know but I, I don't know i love popeye I, I know i probably am squandering all my credibility by saying that because it's such a it's such an offbeat movie and i so liked strange. it too because it was yeah. there was a darkness to it yeah i love the <laughs> fact like he you know the first half of the movie is him just being hated on by all the other yeah. residents of the town and having to win them over and having to prove to them yeah. that you know he he has something to offer and can be one of them. And there's something really satisfying about that that arc. I mean, then it kind of goes off the rails, and they clearly ran out of money. But that oh, some of the stuff you wrote about about they, they need have money for the octopus yeah. to work. <laughs> yeah. It's like the flip side of like what happened to Spielberg in Jaws, where the 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 shark not working was the best thing that happened to him. But the the octopus not working in Popeye just screwed the whole movie. Yeah, I did, but it was interesting that uh, well, the elements that Altman did bring of his own style, the yeah. sort of weird chatter and you know kind of it's like there was chaos on the margins. Yeah, uh, it was sort of interesting, but. But uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I I mean, I understand what you're saying that you know that that he was up against that yeah. uh, in the acting roles. But then some people learned how to use it. I just yeah, you, you know, like the the failed attempt years later with Mike Nichols at, at, for Godot. You know, the yeah. how they thought that you know you could riff within it would be an acceptable thing to <laughs> Godot scholars, right. or Godot freaks, <laughs> or you know, or, or people right, the that purist, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, I understand that too. I mean, but it's one thing to 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 sort of. You know, replay. You know, to to play Shakespeare in in different you know time frames. It's right. different than so. Let's just rewrite this chunk. Right. <laughs> right. I'm better than Samuel Beckett. Yeah, yeah. I could I could do a polish on yeah, Beckett. Yeah. yeah, but it's I think not to you know excuse it, but I think when you again when you look at the earlier parts of Robin's career, even as a student actor and and being allowed to take these kinds of chances and and kind of put at that it, time too in the yeah. early, early 70s yeah late 60s. and you know putting getting getting a lot of renown in the Bay Area for like kind of you know putting his own stamp on Malvolio and Twelfth Night and making that a kind of Jonathan right. Winters as sure. character so if if you have those formative experiences of course you think uh, and, and you know certainly the success with, of Mork and Mindy and getting a lot of the credit not all of it deserved for you know rewriting that yeah, on I thought the fly. that was interesting too that yeah. like you know sort of like there's a lot of things that you put in here that as a journalist I thought were right you know but you, you know but they they do make the machinations of show business a, a little more uh dark but also like you know what they do to a guy like Robin not necessarily dark but you know he gets carried away with himself yeah. and and just by nature of who he is is dismissive or insensitive or uh, a, a bit uh, uh, morally lapsed. Yeah, yeah. Well, especially when it's his kind of first time through the ringer and certainly his first exposure to that 
kind of fame and that, yeah. that kind of celebrity and all the women the drugs the yeah. money starting to come in yeah and then trying to figure out how to live that life or do you live that life and what it means and the fact that you you know that the thing that i definitely appreciated throughout the book was that you know his weird fucking relationship with the the you know like he seemed to have this from the very beginning that you know he had a resentment against mork he had a resentment against the idea of selling out. Yeah. You know, and that, you know, the fact that he was doing coke and drinking and showing up late and that was, he was living the life. But it seemed that throughout, you know, the bits and pieces of the monologues and the bits and pieces of the act that you captured that, you, you know, he knew in his heart that he had sold that, that he wasn't, that the, that the only pure thing he could do was something he had complete control of. Yeah. I mean, it, it, you can hear it on an album like, uh, Reality, what a concept yeah. that he, when he calls out for, uh, in, an improv, subject yeah. or a, a right. cue and somebody shouts out mork and the tone just changes immediately and yeah. you can you can hear it in his voice and he tries to play it off in a in a comic way but you know i'm sure that was happening to him on a nightly basis that you know sure. people people wanted to see mork and not robin and how could how could that not get under your skin right but but i also think that there was the idea that he like he seemed to judge himself very harshly and that he was you know somehow not honoring a more you know that he was a sellout yeah yeah well i think that i, I mean he certainly thought of himself as being capable of so much right. early on and right. even you know that i think even when he got cast in popeye seems to feel like just based on interviews he gave at the time and the way that his castmates and colleagues on the show reacted he really seemed to think that that was going to propel him into yet another echelon and that that might be his ticket out of the show that if he could kick off the movie career with that yeah. then that could get him get him past more yeah. and into whatever he quote unquote really wanted to do right well that was interesting to me that this guy who you who uh, uh, can uh, simultaneously sort of claims to not really know about show business and 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 give a lot of the power to other people yeah. was completely aware that you know that he you know not only expected it but had the talent to sort of cross over or, or break bigger yeah and that he was uh, that it, it, it's a conscious thing there was not a luck thing to it that you know that he was looking for an oscar nomination he was looking for uh, uh, the awards he was you know what i mean and yeah that, and i think i think beneath that is also that kind of inherent contradiction of being uh, intimidated by celebrity, being fearful of what it was going to do to him, and the requirements that it, it, it you know demands to just perpetuate itself, but also on some level desiring it a little bit and feeling like he was uh, destined for it in 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 some way. Yeah. That, that he could feel both of those things uh, simultaneously. Well, I think that 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 is one thing that I I think you know goes goes you know sort of unsaid but clearly indicated in the book is that you know this was a guy that over time you know, knew exactly what his talents were and exactly how to use them, whether it was innate or 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 very much perceived. But I think there is also an underlying truth about him that he. He never. I. I. I don't think he ever believed he was as talented as people gave him credit for. Does or, anybody? 
there's something kind of sad. I mean, it's sad for anyone, but uh, there, I mean, there's a story that his uh, his half brother McLaurin told me from from later in Robin's life, uh, you know, towards the end where they were, uh, you know, out having a meal at a restaurant and they're served by a waiter and the waiter goes away and Robin makes a remark to him about how is there really any difference between me, Robin, and 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 this waiter? Maybe just a few lucky breaks here and there but otherwise you know we're no we're no different i i shouldn't there's no reason why he couldn't have what i have i don't deserve what i and that's that, that's something there's something sad about that don't yeah you but 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 yeah i think so but i but i also feel like you know that that to me you know when you read the book that it wasn't beyond robin to sort of uh, you know attract attention through self-pity that's interesting that's and 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 that you know that that's a device of of a of of a selfish person mm. and, and somebody who is insecure and hard on themselves, but like there's a couple moments where where it reads like that that mm. you, you know that that's why I think it was hard for so many of his of his friends, you know, when he was in trouble or depressed. I mean, depression, you know, if it it, it comes and goes in someone's life, right. you know, one of the uh, a real manifestation of that, especially with a charismatic depressive, mm. is is self pity. Oh, that's a, yeah. So so meaning like that that's a. That's so their of way of for reaffirmation, right? That's their way of kind of putting it out to some, but they they sure. they can't articulate it in quite that way. So that's how they they do it. That's right. Interesting. Well, yeah, for someone to go like, come on, you you know, like if you're insecure and you're going to go that way, which is also a, a fairly common trait of the alcoholic personality, yeah. you know, that however you're going to draw it into your your pathological self centeredness, right? Yeah, no, I, I was, I was, I was uh, happy that you filled in the blanks uh, about the night of Belushi's death, and also about you know his relationship with Pryor and appearing on that Pryor variety show. Yeah, I think that was a very instructive thing. Sure, I mean, because that in a way, the lesson that he took from that was like it, it doesn't, it doesn't pay to be pointed and political. It better to be a little bit more, uh, y- you know, uh, audience friendly. But like I didn't know like you know, there is a mythology around the night Belushi died. And mm. I don't know what was covered in Wired or what had been covered previously. Uh, you know how how did you uh, come to your accounting of it? Well, some of that does come from Wired, which yeah. I think is uh, fairly accurate, and also from I mean you know Pam Dauber, who I, I spoke to, is the one who had to break the news to Robin that Belushi had died yeah. after Robin had been out with him the previous night. So she could give me at least that side of the story, that that portion of it, yeah. and that certainly aligns with uh, the idea that even though he had encountered Belushi that night, that nothing. Of significance or interest had really gone on. There's some discrepancy about, you know, uh, very. I mean, it's pretty minor that like Woodward says that like when Robin was in his in Bellucci's room, they did cocaine together, and Robin denied that. But otherwise, the the account. I mean, the account of what actually happened while he's in the bungalow is pretty. Yeah, the scary lady came with the heroin. Yeah, yeah, and he kind of knows that this is not a place that he, that he should stay. He definitely felt that. You know, like that was around the comedy store. Yeah. You know, like, you, you know, but yeah, I, 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 I thought that was great. Okay. And, I, and I also thought like, because, um, you know, you look at this, like this filmography and it's kind of fucking insane. <laughs> like, that's the thing about guys who like do the work and who, yeah. you know, like, you know, what, whatever you want to trivialize. The guy was in like a hundred movies. Yeah. And, and pretty much, you know, making a, a film to two films a, a year on, on top of everything. And huge films. Doing. That's the other thing about yeah. the difference between what critics say and what America wants. Right. <laughs> you it's know, like, like, you know, he had to live with that. You know, what I think evolved into what must have been an internal critic or how he was going to be received. Yeah. But the fact is, you know, who gives a fuck? That film made one hundred and fifty million dollars. Well, I, I, there's there's few. 
I don't know. May, may, maybe uh, maybe I'm overstating this, but I, there weren't there aren't too many examples I think of movies where the critical reception and the box office reception really diverge. I mean, maybe something like Jumanji. But initially, yeah, I think yeah. that even with Doubtfire, that yeah. you know there was just as many bad ones as good That's ones. That's true. That's and, true. And the same with like. Uh, even fucking, you know, Cisco, uh, you know, Ebert's oh, re- yeah. <laughs> reaction to uh, to Dead Poet Society, yeah, you know, like it was malicious almost, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and Hook, which I think that, I yeah. thought that tanked, but it didn't. No, apparently. I mean it, it did okay commercially. And what I find so interesting is, you know, if I talk to people who are maybe from the like the general generational cohort uh, younger than mine, because I, I remember seeing Hook in theaters and just being uh, kind of. Uh, bored by it and right. not understanding, but to to younger viewers, people love that film. It's on you know cable all the time, and yeah. and it really has found a kind of uh, uh, you know a, a second life. I don't know. I yeah. I, I don't. I, I don't know if I remember seeing it. You, you know what I mean? But I, I remember it not being great. Yeah, it, the, the premise in some ways is so dazzling and so perfect. And yeah. it just doesn't... And, and Spielberg, all those things, like just that, that should have combined to make, you know, the best movie of what, 1990 or 91. And it was not I, It was not that. And also realizing that, you know, Hollywood was a small town still, 1974, 75. Yeah. You know, that the show business was small. You know, when you talk about kings of this or that, yeah, there's just so many different areas, so many different markets, so many different. You know, it's it's not as easy in in a way to to sort of hold a mantle yeah. or be a global personality. Yeah, it, you know, if it's not in music, so yeah, it's definitely a different time. And I think you sort of see how that sort of starts getting by him. How some of his shtick is not aging as well as it it, it could have, and that he does, you know, he doesn't get to become very old, but he did feel that go by him. And yeah. then the Oscar success happened so far into, but that that waiting is just something people do. Yeah, I, I mean, he could never have played the 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 Goodwill Hunting role that Doctor McGuire. I mean, you need somebody who's uh, lived in a yeah. bit and yeah. or, and ha, you know can relate to that kind of wounded person, somebody who suffered uh, enough loss to be able to to play. It's not the kind of thing he could have done. Uh, earlier but it's also you know again we, we talked about like with Mork and Mindy how that blew up and then was immediately squandered and the Oscar success also was something that I mean as as crowning an achievement as as that was that you know that he never kind of uh, capitalized on that or parlayed that that I mean that was immediately followed by things like uh, Patch Adams and uh, Flubber, yeah, and you know, hard I, to turn down fifteen million dollars, I imagine, or however much he was making at that point. Yeah, yeah, we all know what that's like. Yeah, yeah, yeah not me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I I happen to think he did a lot of really uh, terrific work, and certainly the, like a lot of the smaller films in the early two thousands. Definitely, uh, you know, things Bobby's like movies. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I and and, and some, you know something like uh you know world's greatest dad i mean it's uh, uh, sadly i mean there's just too much uh resonance now and uh, you know just the 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 suicide aspect of that film i think makes it probably very hard to watch no i thought it was great i thought that was a wonderful performance I, I, and that's why i think that on some level he didn't like you said he didn't believe that like he always did these roles that were sort of way outside the box for him because I think he wanted to challenge himself yeah. and prove himself to himself and to others that he was this real actor. I think he found them satisfying artistically. I think he certainly had the aptitude for it. And it's just a shame that those aren't the roles that could have paid him, you know, 10 right. or 15 million dollars because he at that point kind of, you know, not when I say I mean, he needed to do them, not because he was like 
you know, short on cash, but that to just maintain that kind of lifestyle at that point or when you're at that level, you have to basically take, you know, a studio role every year and you've got to take what's available. Yeah, divorces will kill you, I and, guess. And I think just, you know, you know, he had two houses, he had, you know, household staffs for them. I mean, it just it 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 costs money to, to yeah. live like that. Yeah. And, you know, so that sort of forces you in some way to take things like you know, RV or what have right. you. I mean, uh, so if he could, you know, if he could have only or continued to focus on, I think, some of these kind of character pieces of these uh, you know, older men who, you know, have uh, suffered and, and who, you know, are a little bit more uh, contemplative and inward, which he could totally do. I mean, there was... Uh, you know, and I, I think also the the Broadway player that he did, Bengal yeah. Tiger at the Baghdad yeah. Zoo. I mean, it, they all just sort of pointed to the potential for at least one more reinvention. I thought, sure, you know, I mean, but you know, it's weird with a guy who's the thing that everybody loves about him is also the thing that becomes sort of saccharine and difficult to take after a certain point. Yeah. It's but but the one thing the book makes clear is that he did everything. There was nothing, you know. Sure, there were more he could do. Yeah. But in terms of a success in show business yeah. or maintaining a career one way or the other you know, and making a lot of shit, yeah. you, you know, it, it's sort of monumental. <laughs> and also being a singular force in the universe that everybody immediately recognizes yeah. is going to have whatever feelings they're going to have. But I tell you, after he died, even people who didn't like him were like, oh, fuck. Yeah. Really? You know what I mean? Yeah. But like coming into this, you know, having written a memoir about cocaine and having a cocaine addicted father which you yeah. did yeah you know what what were you able to resolve i mean what did you bring <laughs> what kind of baggage were you bringing to this it's it's it's, it's so interesting that you say that because of I, I mean no nobody will believe this when i say it it wasn't something that i was consciously thinking of as i'm writing about robin but yeah i do feel like um you know in the opportunities when i got to interview him while he was alive that there were certain there's certainly parallels that I saw with how my father behaves and that kind of relentless confessional quality of the recovering or recovered addict. Your dad got sober? Yeah, and and basically did what Robin did the first time, that there was no 12-step involved, no kind of uh, program. It was a cold turkey thing, and it, it, damn if it didn't take many, many tries to get right. Yeah. yeah. But you got sober like with the recovery eventually? Uh, no, but basically, you know, uh, the brute force yeah. method. Uh, you know, after 20 years, really, of, of, of abuse. Your dad. Yeah. And wow. so he had and still has that quality, I think, of just wanting to tell you <laughs> what he's been through and yeah. tell you this, you know, and, and wants you to know that he's been this other person and how he got past it. Sure. Not that it's boastful, but that it's like, you know, you should be aware of it. And, yeah. and, and I think Robin had that too. Yeah, sure. Uh, so I guess there's got to be some kind of identification or empathy in that way that you know looking for that i guess i'm going to say it out loud but looking for that father figure in sure. some way or in that piece of him and but also having a natural interface with that personality that's interesting right uh, uh, i mean i don't know how, <laughs> how your dad was but was he a charismatic unpredictable guy yeah yeah i guess now that you mention it no it was fascinating <laughs> I, you know much you know when when i was working on the memoir and yeah. i would like go to him he we, he's a furrier and so he sells like the raw animal skins that eventually get made into clothing and stuff so i would go with him to like these uh auctions and sales in like canada and stuff and to see how his like other industry 
uh, like colleagues, competitors, rivals reacted yeah. to him, and it was really so different from how I knew him right. that these people had even a little bit of like a a fear of him or an intimidation. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. is this guy going to kind of swoop? Is he if he's here at the sale? Is he going to swoop in and try to underbid me, or is he going to try to corner the market? On had some? a reputation. Yeah, it was yeah. so interesting, and like it really. This was not the man that I knew at home at all. Who at least when he was sober was much more. Uh, you know, gentle and quiet and thoughtful and very literate uh-huh. and just turned on by a lot of things culturally. Yeah. And then to see that that sort of killer instinct side yeah. of him is fascinating. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I guess that that's the charisma. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I just find that like, you know what, like however you, like you're, you you come from a, you're, you're emotionally wired as by you know what you grew up with absolutely and you know even if it's not apparent immediately if you find yourself interfacing pretty quickly with somebody (laughs) it's because you got some you know some genetic component of your emotional makeup yeah is like no this feels like home yeah yeah no i don't think you spend you know the time uh on on something like this if you don't uh, feel connected to a person at that level sure yeah and and how long did it take you to write robin the writing portion was maybe like a year, year and a half. The whole really? project, all told, was probably you know three and a half to four years. And you didn't, you weren't doing it expecting it to be posthumous. Oh, I was. I mean, the 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 right the work on the book started after his death. Oh, it did. I mean, I oh, had okay. done you know a few different pieces about him for the Times, other stories that were sort of adjacent to him because the, the pieces about uh, Bobcat or the pieces about Billy Crystal that he fi- factored yeah. into. So I had that base of reporting but i I, no, i I mean i didn't start working on the book until after his death and this is your fourth book yes that's right the first two are memoirs yes one was the very first one was about just my experiences uh, getting started in the magazine industry Uh and working at like the lad mags of the early 2000s yeah then the other one that you mentioned was cocaine son which is about my dad and what was it called? Sun, t- cocaine Sun. Yeah, Cocaine Sun. Yeah. And then you were one about Chayesky? Yeah, Mad as Hell, which was about. I got to uh, check that out. Uh, that what was, was it about. So that, I mean, it was the, the it was about the making of Network, but in order to tell that story, you've got to tell the story of Patty Chayefsky and his life and career because he is. I mean, the film is essentially his. It's his creation. I'm mad as hell, and I'm yeah, not going to take it anymore. Yeah. All of Chayefsky's papers are owned by the New York Public Library, yeah. so I got to spend a lot of time just kind of stewing in them and seeing not only all the drafts for Network, but just all the uh, the prep that went into that and lost works of his. Uh, really? Yeah, like TV stuff that he wrote in the 60s that never got made. And I think whole- I have a book of like four plays that he is there a book of yeah there's there's one anthology of his tv plays and then one anthology of his uh, stage plays and was it that you were um more fascinated you were fascinated with him as a yeah i mean i thought that the the movie is is of course very special and just to get to spend time with his papers and uh you know really see from from the ground up how a movie like that came together yeah uh was was really uh rewarding an old leading man like william holden to me that the the sort of sensitivity the natural sort of humility that he had because he was older yeah yeah was like it was really something to see yeah no i mean it, it it's that it I think for each of the principal actors, there's some there's a very kind of weird, a perfect alignment with whoever they happen to be at that point in their life and career. Yeah, they were right. so well suited for those roles. It was true of William Holden. It was true of Faye Dunaway. Yeah. It was true of Peter Finch. 
Duvall? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, Duvall, I think is. I think he's come around to liking that film, but I don't think he particularly enjoyed uh, no, really? making Well, because, uh, I mean, he was arguably the biggest name in the film at that moment, maybe Dunaway, but just didn't. He, he he knew going in that the role was as great as he plays that character that the, he was not really one of the main principal people. It was really more about Holden and Finch and and Dunaway. But the funny thing is that that character, you know, who was great in that movie was um, uh, who was the Ned guy ba- Ned Beatty. Ned Beatty. Oh yeah, of course. That's of course. You have meddled with the primal forces of nature. <laughs> now there's a great impression. And you will. Atone. Am I getting through to you? <laughs> I, lo- I love the way that it turns like that. The best. Yeah. Like the, 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 that was sales. Yeah. It was awesome. Am I getting through to you? Yeah. Well, it just, it, it, it goes from like the height of like this operatic uh, exaggeration and then it becomes small and quiet and pointed and personal. Well, it's just sort of like that's the hustle. Yeah. Is this working? Yeah. <laughs> I can, you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, it's so funny because he goes out of his way to say, I, I could sell anything to anybody. Yes. And now, and so this is like, yeah. he's like, you know, how am I going to, how do you sell to this fucking lunatic? Yeah. <laughs> it's very true. I love, I mean, it's, it's interesting because of course, Finch's mad as hell speech is like that. That's the scene that everybody remembers. That's the epicenter of the movie. But I think no. Beatty's Beatty's speech is just as good. And, oh no, it's great. It's yeah. a, to me, that's the one. Yeah, it, you know, it's like it, it's like an apocalypse now. The only thing that I remember <laughs> is like, what are you gonna do? Go out and you know, land on a fraction, man? You're gonna land on one eighth or one? Like for me, all of apocalypse now is just Hopper. <laughs> Uh, but no, but the way they lit Beatty, yeah, like it was just genius. Yeah, well, and that was they—they they really kind of stumbled into that because they wanted to shoot the scene. They ha- they initially were going to do it at the New York Stock Exchange, uh-huh. and then they have they had to give the stock exchange people like a draft of the speech. And uh-huh. then, of course, they review it, and they're like, "There's no way we're letting you do this scene here." here. So they had to do it at the New York Public Library. Well, they found they and made it look like an old timey conference, like a, yeah, this sort of like you, you know everything about it. Yeah, it's the a, wood. Yeah, the the banker's lamps. Yeah, and the, it's so the lighting con- is yeah. sort of like this is how it's always been. That's, this is Valhalla, yeah, Mr. Yeah. Beale. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Why are you telling me this? Because you're on TV, dummy. Yep. Well, I'm very interested to to read that book. Is that you Thank know you. that movie? Yeah, I watch it every so often. Yeah, I go back to it. Yeah, yeah. In, in a way, I, I mean, I really enjoyed the project, but it's like if that book could have just come out maybe two years later, it would have been, I think, even more apt. It, you know, I think at the, there was even a feeling uh, in 2014, people were like, oh, why is network important? Who cares about you know the risk of putting angry people on TV and letting them shout into the void? Yeah. And now, you know, I think it, that maybe that message is a little bit more readily received but also you know the the sort of prophecy of what tv becomes sure sure you know like that what i was going to say is the guy who played the 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 head of the news department uh, that that character actor who played that guy you remember that the guy with the mustache sort of a tall you know like he just buckles immediately yeah. under <laughs> ruddy like you know you can't do that to my news department we're doing it shut up uh, okay that guy you remember that guy i know who you mean yeah yeah, yeah forget his name yeah uh, oh but I, yeah no i think that there's uh, that 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 whole 
style and spirit of movie making i think is it's kind of lost it's it yeah, that's where i was thinking about that the other day because you have these huge movies you're like what does it take to make a money-making movie and then everything else is just some you know version of an independent movie yeah whereas like these movies that were you know independent in spirit but also cutting and yeah and uh you, you, every like hospital was a pretty big movie yeah yeah, well, that, yeah i mean that know? was a commercial hit and an oscar winner and you know two different studios finance network that was mgm and united artists yeah. when they were still separate and in a weird way, I mean, neither Chayefsky nor Sidney Lumet really came out of that like new Hollywood tradition. They yeah. were n- not really rebels in in that sense, but the idea that they got to basically use studio money to tell the studios and to tell mass media how yeah. stupid it was. Yeah, uh, I mean, there's some there's something it was so, at that time too. Yeah, though. it was at that time, right? Yeah, like that. They everything like the the studios had run out of ideas. Of how to get young people into movies, right? right? So that's that book, that Raging Bull, Easy yeah, Riders, Raging yeah. Bulls. Well, that's the whole thing is that those, I mean, those guys are not part of that scene. I mean, they benefit certainly right. from the success of all those other movies. Well, they're they're creating... from the last sort of generation of studio guys, yeah, right? and they're more TV guys. Oh, they, really? They, they, it, well, uh, Lumet was a live TV guy before oh, yeah. he, huh. you know, transitioned into filmmaking, and and same with Chayefsky. They both come from that sort of golden age, that first era of TV when. The medium seems so sort of pliable and could be so many different. And then they immediately see it kind of get categorized and everything has to be, you know, a Western or a cop show or right. a family comedy. And then there's there's no other categories left. And so right. they both they, they both kind of felt uh, alienated by that in, in different huh. ways. Huh. Yeah. Well, look, man, I, I, I definitely want to pick that book up. Thank you. And the uh, and, but this Robin book's a great read. And like it really. You know, I, I like I was, you know, it's one of those ones where it's you want to keep reading it, nice. even though, you know, the, the you know, what happens at the end, yeah. sadly. But uh, but like uh, all, all of it, uh, the sensitivity to who he was publicly and personally and also the choices he made without being, you know, a cheerleader, but being sort of honest and, uh, you know, and kind of showing him to, uh, as a full human uh, was great. Great job. Thank you very much. Thanks for talking. My pleasure. So that was me talking to Dave Itzkoff. Uh, the the book is Robin. It's available now wherever you get books. But now, uh, I'm gonna uh, I'm going to share with you the the Robin Williams interview I did in 2010 in its entirety. This this interview uh, was a very important day for me. It was a very important day for the show. I think Robin had a nice time. Uh, it was just one of those things, you know, we we tried to get him on the show. It took a lot. We had to jump through a lot of hoops to get to him. But the day that it finally happened, you know, I drove up there by myself with my little flash recorder and I sat in his home uh, up there in uh, Tiburon. And uh, it was just me and Robin in a room in his house uh, on the on the water. And it was a very candid and very connected interview. It was a very honest interview. Uh, I think he said things in that interview that uh, were never said before. And in that interview, put our show on the map in a, in a very big way, put the podcast on the map. So I'm sort of forever in, indebted to Robin for, for drawing attention to the forum. And, uh, you know, he was a sweet guy. And, and it's, a, it's, it's lovely to have this to share with you, but it's sad that he's no longer here. So this is me and Robin Williams from uh, from 2010. Da, 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 da. 
it's old school. It's like a classic stand-up mic I made in that. Hey, Helen, welcome back. I think it's going to be all right. So I, I appreciate you doing this, oh, and uh, I was uh, I was Thanks nervous. Here. I was nervous coming up here. Right. I, don't, I usually don't get nervous. Why? I, I don't know why. You know, because <laughs> I, I, we've hung out before, we've talked before, but then at some point in my mind, I, I'm I'm getting ready to do this, and I'm like, I felt like I was interviewing a former president. I'm, I'm going. <laughs> I never knew. <laughs> It's going to be like the the Williams Marin interviews. These are yeah. going to be. This is going to go on for days. Uh, what 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 phone call? <laughs> exactly. What did I do? It's a blackout. I remember. Was there a prostitute involved? <laughs> I don't know how long uh, you were you were drinking for in this in this little run you took, but I have to assume that driving home had to be an inspiration to stop. I only drove drunk, that I remember once. <laughs> And then one time I, I woke up the next morning and go, oh, where's my car? And, I, and it turned out the bartender had driven me home. He was a sweet guy and he drove me home. And, and the next day I couldn't find the car and I thought, oh my God, my car's been stolen. And they actually, no, they parked it for me in a, in a safe parking lot. So it's nice when people take care of you when you're that loaded. It's the benefit of uh, celebrity, I guess. Yeah. Take more home. <laughs> I get a cinema car, right? What? Now I can do this. I walked home one time from a bar in Toronto, and I woke up the next to morning. To here? No, no. <laughs> yeah, that's a really great yeah. blackout. I was two months walking, and I woke up the next morning with a, a mitten, and I went, oh, my God, this is a child's mitten. Oh, no. And then the worst thought is the next morning, that's the man. <laughs> and it turned out a waitress had given me her, she had tiny hands, and she'd given me her mitten because I'd lost a glove, but I would, that's the worst thing when you wake up going, what's this? There's a road flare. Oh, yeah, or your car has got blood and hair on the fender. Yeah, <laughs> is that human? No, yeah. rabbit blood. Oh, thank oh, God. God. So I, I was doing some uh, some poking around, you know, because I, I, there, there's, a, there's a part of my comedy career that, uh, you know, where, you know, I spent time at the comedy store, and, you know, you were this myth there at that time. Oh, totally. And, you know, I started looking at stuff. And, you know, I talk to a lot of younger comics now, and their history of comedy really starts at Mr. Show or maybe 10 years ago. <laughs> and, you know, when you mention Robin Williams or Pryor or Kennison or anybody, they're like, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I that was the crazy times because Sam, you know, Sam's first night up was just, I remember seeing, who's the guy screaming? Yeah. And supposedly Sam got on because he, he rescued Mitzi from Argus. Right, it was Argus Hamilton who was strangling her in some yeah, sort of drunk like, frenzy. And then, ow, get away! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sam rescued her, and then they put Sam on. My favorite nights were the nights that Pryor was working on Live on Sunset. The first one before he set himself on fire, the right. first stand-up. And you just, it'd be these weird nights where you just watch him. And then sometimes you get to go on after him once in a while. Like he would, you know, have people come on stage with him. And then there'd be people in the audience like Willie Nelson would play music at the end after everyone split. And you'd go... It's like jazz. It's pretty wonderful. But now, in your, did you did Pryor sort of take you under his wing somehow? I well, mean, he took everybody under his wing because he had that variety show that he had on. Uh, I think it was NBC. <laughs> it was like his, the first show was amazing because he had he had this thing. He said, "It's pants up here." So he's, he's you know he's not wearing. You think he's just got his shirt off? And he goes, "Look at me! It's Richard Pryor. I'm on TV. I didn't have to give up anything. I'm on NBC live." And then they pan down, and he's a Ken doll. He's got no genitalia. <laughs> And then after that, they started saying, you know, Richard, you can't do that, you know. And then he, by the time the last show aired, they said, okay, Richard, you, you, he wouldn't, he was kind of angry at them. And he, he said, okay, just film me doing stand-up. And they said, oh, great. They filmed him for 45 minutes. They had 30 seconds they could use. <laughs> that was it. Yeah. But it was like, he had everybody. It was Mooney, Sandra Bernhardt. 
like everybody, he just hired all the comics to be like his players in this in this comedy troupe, and it was pretty wonderful. But it was, I think he just loved hanging out there, you know. And you know, you'd see him backstage. One night, somebody yelled out at him. They said, "Richard, do mud bowl." And he went, "Fuck you! You do it. You know it better than me." And he did a piece one night that was the most beautiful piece I'd ever seen him do. He did a piece about God coming back to Earth to pick up his kid. Uh huh. He's going, where's my boy? And then and he had everyone, all the, you know, and they go, you want to tell him? And they went, I don't know. You know, get the Pope, he'll tell him. I go, where's my son? Um, we killed him. <laughs> what do you mean? Well, we killed him, but he came back, and then he split. <laughs> and we haven't seen him. And then Pryor looked around and went, and then God was about, I'm going to destroy him. And then all of a sudden he took a moment and went, all right, that's it. I'm, I'm leaving. I'm not coming back. I'm going to leave you love. And if you fuck that up, you're on your own. And they walked off stage. And you can see the entire audience go like, huh? What? Is it, what is they it? never did it again. But it was a weird kind of like, I just went, the most strangely beautiful piece. And the response of the audience was like, ta-da. That wasn't a character. No, yeah. That was just him. I love that kind of shit. It was wonderful. It's Be- like those nights you see when you go on and someone says something so fucking wild and wonderful. And deep. Deep. Yeah. So deep that even people in the audience are going, that's uh, deep. I don't know how deep. to respond. Yeah, yeah exactly. it's too deep. It was. Yeah, I, that was one of the questions I was thinking of when I was coming down here is that, you know, despite whatever problems you had throughout your career, that I never sensed any animosity towards an audience. You can't be angry at them. I mean, I, was, I remember oh, one you night. You can't. I, I, I can't. No. <laughs> but I can't. I mean, there's times when I've run across hostile audiences. Towards and, you? Yeah, I mean, but just because they're hostile towards everybody. I mean, right. I remember one audience one night, one night, years ago, when I was on stage, they were sending up kamikazes, which was vodka and lime juice. Mm-hmm. And after about the third one, I realized, you want me to get fucked up? And I said it, and they went, yeah! And you want me to crash and burn? Yeah! And I was like, oh, fuck. It was, I went, oh, I get it. You Did you do it? it? No, I finally went, good night, because I went, I got to stop, because you really just want to see me pass out, don't you? And they were going, fuck yeah. You know, it's that weird... You know, from hanging with Sam, that they crash and burn, that's the way to go. Well, I mean, but that's the way I did it. And that's because I was trying to put into perspective, like, uh, you know, despite my own drug and alcohol problems throughout the years, they never garnered me, you know, any, uh, you know, if, if I was drunk or fucked up up there, I would go after an audience. I would blame them. I would, <laughs> you know, I would say, I, would, I have open shows by saying, what do you fucking want? Oh, but, oh uh, the worst case of that I saw was Keith Jarrett played uh, recently at, at the Civic. Well, I guess the concert hall, Symphony Hall, Davies Symphony Hall. And he's an amazing solo pianist, and he plays his things, but he wants absolute quiet. And if you cough, he's, he'll literally, after he finishes the piece, he'll go, listen. <laughs> I don't, <laughs> people don't cough when I play in my studio at home. Can you try? And he called it a, a failure in concentration. The Japanese don't cough. And, <laughs> and then finally, he played this beautiful piece, and it got to a quiet part, and this woman went... <coughs> And you could see him literally go like this, and after, and then he went up to the mic again to start to tell, tell people, hey, that's not cool. And someone went, just play! <laughs> and I went, it was like, dance for me, black boy. It was like, and I, you could see him kind of go, and he walked off. And then he came back out, because he realized, wait a minute, I can't let you win. He could have, because in Italy he told everyone to go fuck themselves. But he walked out on stage and he said, okay, what do you want to hear? And they started yelling requests, and he played some beautiful, like, old standard. And then he played Somewhere Over the Rainbow, this jazz rendition, really beautifully. And at that point, even the hardcore were like, great, Al, I love you. Yeah. And then he did, you know, and he walked off stage, he got the first kind of... It was, and I think the, the hardcore, the people that were angry going, just play, they split. And then he did five encores, so by the fifth encore, it was just the people who knew, hey, and they were totally quiet, and it was so beautiful. By the end, 
he had kind of done the Buddhist thing of rather than tell them to go fuck themselves, he said, what do you want? Like you said, he did what they wanted, and, the, and then the hardcore, the nasties, the, the entitled white people who are now picketing now today, uh, they were all, they split, and then what was left was the people go, I get it, we're sharing this experience. But it's like, you know, it's so weird. Well, sometimes you get an audience that's just like the gift, and then other times you get, you know, the audience from hell. You know? I just don't, uh, like, I don't, uh, I don't completely understand the, the, the non-angry based comic. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I mean, I guess what's hard to say when, you know, you've got like, there's not a lot for me to be angry at, you know. I, I guess that's true. I, I guess yeah, if when you, you started like a show, like especially when Mark and Mindy was on, uh, someone told me he used to come out and just, you know, say hi, and people go, ha ha, I go, oh, you haven't said anything funny. That's yeah. the scary thing is, there's that kind of, oh, you're famous, you're funny. But the weird thing is, what do you got to be pissed about? You know, it was like that weird thing, I used to joke, and I was 16 before I went to Europe. No, that doesn't sound good. <laughs> You know, don't you hate it when you have to walk to a private plane? Right, right. Oh, fuck, you know. How many people have problems with their maid? Yeah. Well, one of my houses, it's like when all of a sudden there was the Malibu fires and people are forced to leave their second home. I went, ain't life a bitch. Yeah, right. It's like... Not I guess that's true. It's, but it's weird, but you can still get angry with, like you said, ignorance or like just drunks. But being angry at a drunk is like bitch slapping a cow. It's not really effective. <laughs> yeah. And I guess that's true. I mean, when did you do... How old were you when you did Mork? I mean... I was about 26. 29, 27, and that was crazy shit. You know, I'd go from, you know, doing the show and then come to do the comedy store and then go to the improv, and then you'd go hang out at clubs and then, you know, end up in the hills in some Coke dealer's house, you know. Yeah, sure. Angel, it's Robin. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. then you'd wake up the next morning going, oh, and not even wake up, you haven't gone to sleep, and, you know, oh, you're I, like I, a I, vampire on a day pass going, how are you? <laughs> Yeah, and then you have to go do it again. Mm -hmm. You know, I have no regrets. I met a lot of interesting people, logged a lot of hours, you know, few pirates that you just like. <laughs> I mean, you're you're Robin Williams, and and you're well, in this was, room with a guy who says he's a gaffer, some guy with an eye patch, and yeah. you're waiting for some other guy to bring shit that you don't even know where it came from. And the, if you're famous, most of the time you get it for free, which is weird. It's like it's like the same thing when you get gift baskets at award shows. Going, I don't need this stuff, thank you. But my coke dealers go, here, dude. Yeah, we love you. We want to see you die. You want to see you die. I don't want to get you high because it's it's part of our advertising campaign. I got Robin loaded. Yeah, they uh, yeah, and they like being connected to you. And it's it's part of the whole thing of a little dust for you, and then you'll spread the word and other celebrities. And eventually, if they get busted, then they could subpoena you. Right, but also they get to hang out with you big time. Then and and then they realize, can... Jesus, on coke, you're a boring fuck. You know, oh. you look out the window a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah I do. I, I do. <laughs> yeah, there's ninjas coming up the wall. <laughs> yeah, ninjas, but, maybe you know, just cops. I, I mean, yeah. What are you doing? What's that noise? It's a, it's a spider. But that Hollywood Hills thing then, I can't even imagine what it was like. Because by the time I was there with Sam, I mean, it seemed like the wave was crashing. I mean, he was the most demonic manifestation of of that scene. I mean, shit, you were there. You were like, I had to bail him out once. I had to go. I think it was one of the houses, I don't know if you lived there, but one of the houses, he trashed a house and they were going to take him to court, so I ended up paying the cleaning deposit. And another time he, he did it to a hotel room in New York and they're about to take him when I ended up saying, okay, I'll, I'll cover your hotel bill. But it was weird, that whole kind of, you know, throwing TVs out the window. You're going, it's old school. Yeah. Know, this old English rock. But is it necessary? fucking did it. <laughs> yeah. Why are you doing that? Exactly. <laughs> Shitting on the carpet. <laughs> Yeah, taking it, you know, what are you doing? <laughs> Took a dump on your RV. Fuck off. Well, you were there, were you there during it? it I was gone when he was doing that. No, I know, because I was there. Yeah, and, you and were there. There was, there, were, there was talk of you. The, yeah, he'd gone. He's, yeah, yeah. At that point, I moved back up to Napa. It was like, I But done. you'd been clean then, by then, weren't you? I mean, the first... I had 20 years sober before I relapsed recently, and it was like, it was that whole thing about my son being born, 
It was just like, fuck, I can't do this anymore. You know, it's just. Well, I remember you did material on that about having the kid and having it be like Coke and. Yeah, it's like you're awake, you know, yeah, you yeah. haven't slept, you're, you smell like shit and piss. And well, what the hell do you think happened this time? What brought you out? I mean, what it brought was, me, what, what made me relapse? I was up in Alaska in a place. Enough called, said. Yeah. <laughs> you know, who's up there? People witness protection. Go to the bar and say, I nice can drink. tooth. Yeah. It's another planet. Oh, yeah. Even when I was drinking there, even the bartender went, I heard, I thought you were sober. I am. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> can you keep a and secret? I started drinking with like the tiny little bottle of Jack Daniels, like the little ones you get in the airplane. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I thought, this is fine. Yeah. It's a small and bottle. And a week later, I was hiding them, you know, a big bottle of Jack Daniels and just like, yeah, it went quick, it, and it was and it was just being in Alaska. What were you doing up there? This movie called The Big White, and just totally just thinking, what am I doing here? This is crazy, and then and feeling kind of like isolated, and all of a sudden went, well, there's one cure, and all of a sudden you feel, I feel warm after this, and then it was just so fucking quick. Were you publicly I, drunk? A couple of times, yeah, a couple of times that people had to kind of go, maybe you should go home now. You know, it's nice. It's like. I think you said this once at a coke dealer actually said that's enough. Yeah, sent me home. Yeah, they yeah. used like I was like that's what do when I do? they when you know you're fucked up when your dealer's going, I think you yeah, gotta stop. You gotta right go. Now. At least for the day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they start talking that shit yeah, to you. Yeah, it's yeah, time you to gotta go. Clean up your act. And then it was three years of just and denying and the whole myth that uh, with alcoholics that vodka doesn't smell till you sweat. Oh yeah. And it's, then, it's, oh, so and then you just start acting out and acting out and acting out and acting out and then until eventually I was in Cannes at a fundraiser on stage, um, you know, just drunk off my ass, and I looked up and I went, oh, that's a wall of cameras. That's kind of cool. And I went, <laughs> at this point you're going, you, why don't you just take a shit on the stage and then people might notice. What are you doing? That's a fucking crazy shit. <laughs> and you're not really the kind of guy where they're like, ah, oh, it's Robin. Yeah, <laughs> no, no, at that point they're going, oh. Whoa, this isn't good. Oh, Opie's, Opie's <laughs> doing crack. Yeah. Oh, and did do you think it was some? You can really. I mean, I know you know drinking is just drinking in the in the mindset. No, no, I think it's it's trying to fill the hole and it's fear and you're kind of going, where am I doing in my career? And you start thinking, you know what would be great at this point? Rehab. But it's the idea of just to bottom out. Yeah, you, you just, felt a, a sort of emptiness and a fear of, of where time. you go next. Yeah, where do you go next? And what am I doing? And rather than kind of go, okay, this will pass. You go, no, this will map, It'll pass quicker. But it's it's so interesting to me that you know you have these experiences and you know I mean you're an international superstar. I'm I mean, shit fades though. So. You know the weird thing is people say you have an Academy Award. The Academy Award lasted about a week and then one week later people go, hey Mork. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh God. So you're back and it's like all that stuff. You know. It's you still there. get that? You don't get that anymore. Mork. Oh God, yeah. Once Come on. In, once in a while, just because it's on Nickelodeon or you get people kind of go, that's their memory bank. It's a show like that is in people's. Like a Kishik memory. Does that bother you? No, I go. It paid for the ranch. It yeah. paid for the house. It, right. And it was great experiences. I got to meet wonderful people, and it paid a lot of bills and kicked my career way in the ass. Don Marrero said, if "Without that, where the fuck would you be?" I go, "You're right." Did I he say that recently? No, that was. Oh, fuck you. <laughs> but it's you know, it was that weird fucking thing of yeah, you have all this stuff, but the weird thing, the only sanity clause that sounds like a Marx, but hey, that's I don't believe in a sanity clause. <laughs> The idea is going on stage is the one salvation. Now, how long did you stay away from stand-up? I mean, you Not never long. really... I mean, it would come and go. It became, like, after, like, the 2002 tour came after 9-11. It was literally, we were doing this Mark Twain Award in Washington, and, and it was, like, I think almost a month after 9-11, and people were kind of going, 
could see that there was just like almost like lifting a siege, and you went, "Oh, Jesus, man, it is good to get back out and do this shit," you know? Oh and yeah, I mean, I saw you at Stand Up New York a, a couple of times. That's why I love going on there. And it's a very small place. We're at the Comedy Cellar, and like, uh, I mean, you, you know, I mean, your desire to connect and your 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 style. Like like you were saying before, there's this weird thrill where the people they see you get the but take then the, the thrill stage. wears off, and then you got to find something. and then yeah you got to get in it. Yeah, and we were talking about that before uh, at the comedy store that the honesty where you're at your point in, the, in your life now, where you're at the age you're at now, and you're having the experiences you're at now. I mean, it takes some balls to really deal with that stuff. To deal with it, I mean, I am, I'm not to the point where Pryor could talk about it in so fucking deep that, you know... That, but that's your inspiration? Yeah, in my inspiration. And with the people I see doing, I mean, you talk about it, honestly, Chris Rock. Chris did the most amazing thing recently. He said, you know, it's weird. All of a sudden, uh, if, you, if you get a, if, a sexual, you know, if you cheat on your wife, everything is a felony, first degree. But that should be like, if you get a blowjob in Georgia from a stewardess, that should just be a misdemeanor. <laughs> if you <laughs> fuck a best friend, that's a felony. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you go like... Have you turned this routine for your wife? He went, not yet. Right. But it's that balls about what can you talk about? Isn't it funny? The balls is not, it's not relative to, to, uh, transgressing any cultural taboos, but it's like, well, I don't know if she'll take that shit. <laughs> Those are the real balls. Like, <laughs> they really know, are. When you come home to that, you know, mm hmm. Oh, yeah. Even okay. if you've only been dating them two months. Big time. Know? And you go, well, can she tolerate that shit? And then you can't pull that thing. It's like, it's my act. It's not your act. We, I was with you when that happened. That was days. us. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That was me. That thing when you look like you're going down on a girl, that's what you look like. Uh, yeah. Fuck off. Yeah. And it's like, you know, that's the scariest part. It's also people when you do like jokes about famous people or anybody and then, then you run into them. What Sandler I, never forgave me for something. Serious? Kinda. I mean, I did this joke where I used, uh, as a descriptive, you know, like I, I mocked Adam Sandler fans. And then I run into him at the improv one night and he's like, I hear you're talking about me. And I'm like, yeah, I did on television. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, get over it. Yeah, he's like, what's your problem? Uh, and I'm like, dude, you're a cultural icon. At some point, we can't, you know, I mean, you don't I'm get immunity. Well, know. I'm in no bit position. Like, you know, it's not like I have any cachet. You know, I'm still able to make those kind of mistakes. My, the liability for me is like, well, you're not in the group. You know, you, you know, oh, you will be famous. excluded. Yeah. yeah and, and, and or also that you'll never get in now, you fuck. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> do you want in? No, like, no. Like Croucher Mark said, do you want to be a member of a club that would have you as a member? It's no, like, no. It's a fucking frightening thing. I mean, one time I was doing this thing, I was, and it was a benign impression of Stallone, you know, as being monosyllabic. And Billy, Billy Crystal leaned over and went, he's here. And I went, hi. Yeah. And then you gotta go, then you gotta deal with so it. How did he deal with it? He was funny. It's not that, he's not saying like, well, like what Bobcat said that during the Vietnam War he was teaching Jim to Swiss schoolgirls. That he was a little upset with that, and he said, oh, "If you actually him. attack their character, yeah, if you attack their character, I said, you know, actually go after a real hardcore personal point, then they get like, oh, I'll kill you. You're fine. How do you take it when people? It, it's hard. Oh, you it hurts, but then you realize, and and you, what do you do for a living? I make fun of people. Good luck, thank you. Yeah, it's a. Uh, I guess you have to get Buddhist and say you're you're there, dude. Like you said, you're in you're in the mix. When you fuck up, you're in the mix. Like yeah, like a week ago." I did this thing on Letterman, and I thought, this is pretty benign. I'd just come back from Australia, and he said, how's Australia? He said, no, Australians are like English rednecks. And cut to, I get, I land in L.A., and they said, the Prime Minister of Australia was offended by the remark. He basically said, perhaps Mr. Williams should spend some time in Alabama before he calls someone a redneck, which triggered the governor of Alabama to call the Prime Minister of Australia and said, you know, we're, uh, people in, uh, in uh, Alabama are decent, hardworking people. In other words, we're not rednecks either. 
Now he's campaigning against Australia to get yeah, it. No, they're 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 have a linguist. Yeah. Yeah, they go, oh, no, no, you don't ever call us that. Like, g'day, now what are you saying? No. And it was just weird to go, oh, wow, I pissed off a prime minister. That's this weird thing. But then it was like, then I went on Australian radio going, well, I was talking linguistically. If, if you combine an English accent and a good old boy, you get this. You know, if you go, hello, good to see you. And hey, how are you? You get, hi, good eye, y'all. And it's just weird. That was the joke? The joke was, I didn't even say that joke. That was the joke I did. That wasn't spin? You were trying to... I didn't. I, I was trying to spin it back. <laughs> so I don't get, you know, land in Australia and get a cavity search. Hi. You know, Roman, step back here. Don't be afraid. We're putting on an oven, Matt. When I talked to... Uh, yeah, it's a very coincidental, but I, I, I actually uh, had Steve Pearl in my hotel room yesterday. Fucking hey, He said that we, he's been so wonderful to see him back here and so sane again. And he, he really be, funny as shit because he got so dark when he lived in L.A. I know, and that's how I knew him. That's when I you met knew him, him in the dark, dark Stephen. Well, that's like what's anti Stephen, and it's now he's still fucking hilariously funny. But it's like he's 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 got a girlfriend and he's up here and he's, he's away happy. From the, he's away from the black hole. Yeah, and he's in the black hole and himself seems to have filled in a little oh, bit. Oh, big time! He's, he's happy. chipper and it's like oh, sparky. But he's still like he's fucking. He does the same. I'll tell you right now, sir. Yeah, and he does all these. And he's like you see him at the Throckmorton, and he's like he kicks ass. And it's just going, is he killing? Killing. Well, that was the interesting thing because, like, you know, in the San Francisco, like, uh, in, in, I get a lot of comedy nerds that listen to this show, and they're they're sort of a, an elite bunch. Some of them. That must be a weird group. Well, they just are this weird. Out, just this side of comic people. Well, it, well, exactly. But they've sort of latched on. I think it started, you know, you know with Mr. Show with uh, Bob and Dave, and they, you know, there there's a sort of intelligentsia element to it. Well, people uh, who know, I found, and, and they also think people like finding, you know, young comics are finding. I found they find niche comics that they go, I found this guy. No one knows. Well, about that's him. what it is. Is. It's a, there's a whole community around that. Like you performed at the UCB, I think, a couple of times. Oh, my favorite. Yeah, and that that's sort of like you know ground zero of that's that. Ground zero for weird, strange, like kicking it comedy. Well, that's well, that's like the analogy I was trying to make and trying to talk to Pearl when I could talk to him. You know, with, when I was. <laughs> When I was being, when you were swimming you know, upstream, when being bombarded with the history of civilization in small fragments, yeah. uh, was that you know San Francisco? I guess in the late seventies and early eighties, when you guys were here, uh, really defined a, a type of comedy, and I don't think people really talk about it that much. And I, I think that, that you and Pearl were sort of at the center of what became uh, a well, riff there style. A lot of people. There was him, Pearl. There was Paula Poundstone. There was all these weird uh, a Whitney Brown, or now he says the Whitney Brown. There's all the, and Dana Carvey, and, and a lot of, because it had weird clubs. Bobby Slayton. Bobby, the Jews, old Jews. Yeah, yeah. Jews and Chinese. It's, yeah, it's yeah. Godzilla versus. Yeah, yeah. Ah, 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 ah. The battle of the ancient cultures. <laughs> Give me the mo. I want the mo. <laughs> well, you gotta think of the clubs, you know, kind of brought that out, like the Holy City Zoo, which is a weird kind of wine bar next to a hardcore rock and roll bar, or the other cafe located near. The streetcars are going by. All of a sudden, you'd be doing a show and ding ding, and then you'd see the weird people getting off. And and it was that the other cafe, uh, some cobs when it was down in the marina. Weird clubs that kind of brought out weird styles. And it seemed like the community in San Francisco sort of indulged your indulgence. Totally, they were. Totally you can't do it anywhere else. No, I mean, I think you're right. It was a, an eclectic mix, you know, and allowed, you know, like. Weird comedy like Freaky Ralph, who eventually set himself on fire. To close? No, to, to end his life. Oh, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's the ultimate closing. But seriously, I'll be here till five minutes from now. 
God, man, you're killing yourself. Oh, oh shit. fuck. Yeah, to close only a comic record. <laughs> to close. How did you see the first and second it's show? Not, it's not an opener. Oh God. So the style that you like. Mine was just based on the fact that I didn't use a mic. Because uh, if you want mic, it, they, I, if I can go off mic, and also wading into these clubs is the only way to kind of, you know, wait. If people started heckling, you just wade over into the audience and kind of go near their table or move away from them and use the other side of the room and fuck the loud people over here and the drunks at the bar. So you're, you, uh, from and the beginning, cause right. it, and just playing off a of shit that was going on or just trying to go, okay, what's, uh, coming in with some ideas, but not like, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. One of the great, strange performance at that time was Jeremy Kramer. There's an eclectic name. That Jeremy would go on and just do loud, wonderful characters. He was like the West Coast Gilbert Godfrey. Right. And he would be like, yeah. Hi, everybody! Yeah. And he would do, you know, weird, kind of wonderful, strange characters that literally, if people would love him, or drive people out of the room. There was no middle ground. Well, that was there was some integrity to that at a certain point in time that if people left. You know, but when, so, when like, Gilbert would do the entire rock opera of, of Tommy as Jerry Lewis, that's a ballsy move till he'd empty the room and the only person left was Larry David. Yeah. You know, that's when you go, that's commitment. Yeah, and and I think that there's still something to be said for that. You don't see people with that much balls anymore. I think it does take a certain amount of balls to cut that type of territory on cut stage. Cut that type of territory and realize, or or... Like Lenny Schultz in the middle of one time, and this is the strangest name in comedy, you know, giant Lenny, steroid pumped up Lenny on stage doing a children's showcase for uh, Nickelodeon. Uh-huh. And at one point he realizes this isn't going well, and then he t pulls out a double-headed dildo. How's this for your fucking kids? <laughs> and then starts playing, playing it with, playing turkey in the straw with a double-headed dildo and going, oh, this is when you that's go. That's comedy. That's comedy. Yeah, that's, that's, the, that's the real stuff. That's the business, yeah. my boy. Well, that, that's interesting, though. So you from you know you come out of Juilliard doing it. You, you did stand up. I left up. school. I fell in love with this girl. I did you finish? Uh, no, I didn't finish. I, they they even wanted me to finish, and they kept saying, "Come back." And I went. I fell in love with this girl. Moved back here. Couldn't find acting work. And one day went. What? There's a weird comedy workshop, and you know, because I'd done a lot of. What year are we talking? Probably seventy six. Uh huh. Yeah, three years of Juilliard. You know, probably maybe even seventy five. And just doing this comedy workshop in the basement of the Intersection Coffee House. And then all of a sudden, there was, they had a night of lesbian poetry and stand-up comedy, which is a great audience to begin with. Sure. And if, Cause you know they're gonna like you just being a man. A man, yeah. <laughs> There's gonna be a lot of love there. Yeah. Big male penis violence. <laughs> but it was weird and starting with that and then this weird kind of comedy thing of one, a lot like the, the zoo had one night of comedy. And there, a lot of clubs at that time were kind of going, we'll try a night of comedy. Whereas in the eighties, everything, every di every disco, every other club had a you know a comedy night. But I think that whole no mic thing really defines you know still that because uh, uh, when I go off mic, the the control you have of a room changes dramatically. Totally, people are forced to kind of go what? Yeah, they're like take it in, and so you were able to sort of like. You but know, I know guys who do that. You know who really. That's why when I do stand up, I, I use a wireless mic. I just, I don't. This is hard for me to go. Okay, good evening, thanks. And it, it seemed to me almost old school to go. Hi, everybody. Nice to be holding here. Holding mic. Holding the mic. And when I've had to go do clubs where I do, I kind of I leave it in the stand and kind of come and go to it. It's almost like a, oh, come back. Point of reference. Come back. But it was also I think I gotta move. A moving target, literally. And you still like you know you still like put it out there, man. I mean, but you I, gotta you know, for me. And the reason, like when we go on at the comedy cellar, uh, it's therapy. It's a, it's a it's it's a relief from that shit, like you said, of this this weird thing of the celebrity and all that other crazy shit, where you can go on stage and especially like you go on stage late, 
and like you said, with an audience, it's kind of especially, I don't know, there's certain audiences where they go, okay, so something new. Right. And they're, they're a little beaten up. If you go on late, you know, and it's half They're beaten up and, and then they're, they're going, and then you know if you find something new, it's new. Then it's new and also different or really honest or really, like you said, deep or just fucking crazy shit. But I think the personal truth, you know, becomes more daunting. I, I, to me. Yeah. For me, it's a difficult thing to well, do. Well, you know, it's like if you want to, you know, you know, pontificate or, 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 or take a soapbox, which I've done plenty of in my life. And I'm just at this point and I'm, I'm a little younger than you where it seems to me that the real risk, the one thing that all of us share is that existential you know, fear that, you know, the panic of, you know, what does it really all fucking mean? Big time. Uh, you know, what do we do with this anger? Uh, and, and what do you I, do with the anger? And what do you do with the, beneath the anger is the fear. Like you said, what's the fear? Yeah. And, and, and I talk think about that. And you talk about it to a 20-something, and they're going, because they're, they're like, um, immune at that point. Well, yeah, I do a bit about how, like, I've, I've gotten old enough to uh, to resent people for being young. <laughs> like, and, and, and I'll ask someone in the audience, how old are you? And if they go, like, 22, I go, uh, you know, fuck you. You're 20. You think you got life by the balls. And I tell them, I say, you do. You do have life by the balls. But what you don't realize is that the cock of life is planted firmly in your ass. And you're just helping it along. <laughs> and they don't really know what to do with that. Because there's no way they can... Like, they can't fathom that. Well, I do the, the podcast. You know who can fathom it? There's this... Like, I get emails from 14 to 18-year-old guys saying, you know, I really understand where you're at, the frustration, all this stuff. And then when they get about 20... Uh, you know, 20 to 35, which is the prime demographic, I got nothing for them. But, you know, 18, <laughs> 14 to 18 year old kids, they understand the fear and the pain and everything oh else. And then God. the cocky time comes. And then when you get in your mid thirties, they're like, Oh, now I get it. So I've alienated the only profitable demographic. I'm, I'm very clever like that. You're basically 18 to 25, nothing. Fuck off. Yeah, yeah. That's why I wanted to talk about Twitter to me. I go, Twitter, why would I? Twitter, the next step for me is stalker. You know, I'm having lunch, I know. Yeah, yeah. I might not have a table near you. Well, there's, but, a, there's yeah. a, a website where they say, uh, you know, where, you know, people are Twittering so much that, you know, for criminals, they're like, well, he's not home. He just told us they he wasn't home. And they talked about it in the news and went, great, even now, they, now you're giving them even more of a clue. What the fuck? Like, yeah, look, I'm having lunch. Yes, so <laughs> fucking A. Yeah, we're at your house. Yeah. Thanks for the stuff. Yeah, and your dog is not here. <laughs> So, well, how do you now? Like I noticed, and now with the with the last one, the weapons of mass self destruction was that what it was? Yeah, Weapon, that you are taking you know more risks than you have before with your own life and your I yourself. Am, but it's also you know it's that weird thing of still talking kind of in general terms versus hardcore specific terms, which is like that thing that you leave either for. Ther- At one point, I had a therapist go, "Are you comfortable talking about this?" I went, "Maybe," you know. It's that idea of. Like I told you with Chris, he was talking about stuff. I went, wow, would that I had the balls, you know. But at the time, I was in the middle of a divorce. You're going, not good. Initially, I was going to call the tour, remember the alimony. And they went, maybe not. Yeah. Not until we get the paper signed. (laughs) You're not paying alimony, number one. Number two, not profitable. And the idea of... Well, that's bitter. There's a line where... Yeah, I mean, someone said recently that they saw John Cleese who was going through this divorce. And he was on stage and he was so angry that the audience at one point was like, stop, you know. Right, because bitterness is not... I tried to sell it for a long time, and it's really just amplified self-pity. Totally. And and it reads that way. And people kind of go, I get it, but you move on. You know. Right, like, that's that's the weird thing about people, is that, you know... You, <laughs> going, if, it's, if you can talk, it's that old acting thing. The more personal you make it, the more, the, and the more specific you make it, the more people will relate to you. Because they'll go, as personal as you think it is, there's a lot of people going, I feel that. Well, that's how that's where you get them. But you know, where where to get that in comedy is is a little trickier. Yeah, because you walk over that line and going, I feel this, and I want to I want to burn, and you go, no, no, 
we don't feel that. Right, know? right, exactly. Or they go, don't share that part. Well, then you have to you know, accept that idea that where they can, you know, where either they laugh with you or they laugh at you. At some point, you have to be comfortable if they're <laughs> no, laughing at you. You're comfortable with either one, of laughing at you. Can, you. can you can you tolerate that? And that's maybe sometimes where I go, oh, go, you know, the insecure part goes, no, no. no. What, what, do you, what are you afraid will happen? I guess it's that fear of you'll recognize that, you know, as you know, uh, how insecure are we really? Yeah. How desperately insecure that we, that made us do this for a living? Well, I just, I went to your IMDb page and, and over the, the 25 years of, of, uh, appearance changes, I think that they can. <laughs> Big time going, why are you the beard? You have a beard, you have a beard, you're fat, you're clean, you're thin, you're like, you're blonde hair, you're bald. It's that weird thing, but those are a lot of times for characters, but it's the idea of, at what point, you know, what level of acceptance, like you said, and, and look what we do for a living in, in terms of stand-up. You get to do stuff that if you did it, you know, just on the street, people go, Batman. Yeah. You talked about his penis to me openly. Right. And you're going, but you're doing it in a club. All of a sudden, there's license to thrill, that old thing. You can do this stuff. But, like you said, the line, stepping over and back over the line of like, what are you going to find out? You're going to find out that, you know, you're this weird, insecure guy who does this and looks and looking like Lenny Bruce said, for love. Going, do you love me? Yeah. Temporarily? Yeah. Kind of? Yeah. And then and, and can you put that at risk going, I don't care if you love me. i got to say this shit. And that's why I guess sometimes you can go, is that an artist or, or is that a sociopath? Yeah. Who or a psychopath? Who well, let's not fuck. make labels. Let's not call. <laughs> I'm not going to label him. In fact, he stabbed that kind of you He's know, genius. You know, he's a genius. Know. He's a good man. That's What's a Nor- his name? Buddy Hitler. Yeah, that's a Norman Mailer school. He oh. can write that guy. Who oh, cares if he boy. God bless him. Yeah. But do you find that you, do you really feel like you, like when you grew up, uh, because like my relationship with my parents sort of defined you know, who I am. And it Mine was too. But like my, were your parents absent? No. My father, when I was young, he was off. He was, he was a vice president of Lincoln Mercury. So like a sales division. So he was all over the Midwest. He'd come back and I know he'd come back because all of a sudden there'd be like this new Corgi toy. He'd be like, I brought you back a little, yeah. like a thing. It was like, cool. You were only child? Yeah. And I have two half brothers. One I found out later on. For a long time, they told me he was my cousin. It's a bit like Nicholson going, Lauren's your cousin. Then when I got to be 12, I went, no, actually, he's your half brother. It's like, you know, I felt like Nichols should walk in. What is it? It's your brother or your cousin? And then, you know, my mother, very, very, really funny, terminal optimist. Everything is wonderful, beautiful. My father is, you know, the hardcore pessimist, you know. I asked when I told him I wanted to be an actor, he said, great, have a backup profession like welding. But it was like, the, between the two of them, I got this weird kind of, not cynical, but hyper-realism and this hyper-optimism of my mother, of like, everything is rainbows and beauty. And a bit like Tom Cruise, all you need is vitamins and exercise. And then you'll be fine. Right. Even when I'm addicted to Coke, that'll, we can get you through that. Vitamin. That's vitamins. Yeah. <laughs> vitamin C. Yeah. Colombian calcium. <laughs> but it was like, between the two of them, you get this weird desire to connect with her using kind of comedy and entertainment and, you know... And my father about, you know, look at the world realistically, be hardcore, you know, you know that pony's going to shit sometime. There, I guess there was this old, I don't know who said this years ago, your mother knows how to push your buttons because she installed them. Right. You know, and yeah. I used to have this pillow that my mother saw that said, if it's not one thing, it's your mother. And she was, what does that mean? I went, I don't know, mom. Yeah. What do you want it to mean? See, them or the wife, someone's going to, you know. Someone's going to get like, oh. So how, because it seems like you're, you're, you're back on the scene you know, doing stand up regularly. Yeah. And you've got the big. Uh, how do you deal with the bitterness of your peers? 
and and what they direct at you because you know the you know, things are said in the community. Yeah, you know. I mean a lot of it's old school and a lot of it's true from the way past. But you know I don't hang out in the in the community. I mean the community up here is pretty mild compared to down there. I mean, in New York, I feel safe. L.A., I get kind of like, oh, well, what about know. the whole, like, you know, I mean, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't address it because it, it's something that I, I want to talk to you about. And, and it, it's something I hear all the time. And I think it's demeaning, the, this whole stealing issue. I think in the old days, it was if you hang out in comedy clubs when I was doing almost 24-7, you, you hear things. And then if you're improvising, you all of a sudden you repeat it going, oh, shit. Right. That's the way your brain works. My brain was working yeah, yeah. that way. And now I went and then I went I literally had to go through a period where I'm not going to hang out anymore. I can't because I don't want to get into that thing. And I was also like the bank of comedy. I went, oh, shit. Here, here you go. Here's money. I'm sorry. I didn't know that. Oh, shit. I'm Is sorry. that how you dealt with it? I, just, I mean, just paid shitloads of cash. I was just like, here you go. I'm sorry. And then. And then after a while, I went, I bought that line already. I saw it. And then they have to pay again. I went, oh, fuck, I'm sorry. So just guys so who like, would come up to you and say, well, say, you know, I do that. And I went, but so does everybody. Right. It's like there's other stuff that's common material. And sure. There's other things that go, fuck, you're right. I'm sorry. I heard that. And then it was like, okay. And then I went, I can't hang out in here anymore. And then it took literally going, when I go here to the Throckmorton, I'll see friends and I can hang out like with Overton. Sure. Or you see Steven and all these other guys, and it's like, oh, cool, I'm okay. That's why it's kind of like living up here, I don't worry about it. In New York, I go, I can go on and hang up upstairs in the restaurant and not, and then go on stage. I don't want to sit down and watch comics all the time. But, you know, in the old days, yeah, there was that whole thing about just going from club to club to club. It's one of my, yeah. Yeah. There are a lot of people that was like, you would say, like, there were styles, and you're like, but he's doing him. I go, yeah, it's Sandra Bernhardt's doing Taylor Negron. Yes. You know, you go, like, at that point, you're going, look at the blending. Well, that behind every genius, there's a guy going, he stole my soul. Fucking A. But it's that whole thing of what's the bitterness versus do you want to hang out, do you engage it? And you say, what's the truth of it? Yeah, I know the truth of the old days, but now it's like, I don't hang, so I don't know. Well, you know. that's the weirdest thing is that, like, there's this idea that when, when you have show business, which is just a community uh, of bitter people aspiring to something, <laughs> and, 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 and they're children because what they're aspiring to is ridiculous. And, I mean, you've had it. <laughs> You've had a tremendous career for, for a lot of reasons, but there's a lot of people that, you know, that they just, they go to Hollywood. I used to do a line where I said it took me years to realize Hollywood wasn't my parents. That you, you, you go. Wow. To, looking for approval. Well, yeah, just like I'm here. Where's my, where's my trailer? Uh, and, and, and I think that the bitterness that when, when people dismiss somebody who's had a, a career, you know, as big, and huge as yours, that the idea that like, you know, if he didn't take that one joke, he wouldn't be Robin Williams. I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean, you look at even you look at someone like Pryor, who literally did Cosby for the first two well, years well, of his before life. Before the auteur theory of comedy happened in the late fifties, where comics actually owned their point of view. I mean, it was what people did. I mean, you know, Jerry, you know the, oh, the yeah. worst belt guys were like, "Are you doing that bit about the uncle tonight? Yeah. Can I do it? All right, and I, yeah, I'm open it." And, and it was interchangeable. It's also the idea of you know common ground when you say when there's certain fucking subjects you go you talk about are you talking about the president fuck i talk about the president oh. well yeah well there's a difference between like uh um it's but a not- joke joke a joke joke you can get why it's a crafted thing going if someone does a joke joke right but then there's also jokes that are so fucking public domain that that's right public domain just happens yeah. how can everyone not there's yeah, ten thousand comedians we're all drawing from the same reality pool give yeah you're like okay you got the limit joke yeah, yeah, yeah of course yeah of course stop masturbating why because i'm trying to examine you <laughs> it's like these things and but it's but then the truly unique guys don't give a fuck sure they're just like well i won't do it anymore but if you, no one ever accused Andy, you know, Kaufman, because he was so strange. That right. Yeah, you know, just going, he's a genius. I went, yeah, fucking A. What were some of the, did you know him well? Yeah, I mean, I, I was talking to someone the other day. I only had one conversation with Andy where he wasn't talking to me as a character. 
And I went, you know, I went and to what was that like? Were you concerned? <laughs> Not at all. He just went, hi, Robin. I, uh, how are you? I went, good, Andy. How are you? Really good. I'm, I'm just here buying something. At, it was at some health food store. And then by the end of the conversation, slowly but surely, he went back to this. And I went, okay, I'll see you. Take care. And that was that? Yeah. What were some of the most, uh, you know, powerful moments, you know, for you in, in, in either in movies or just with people? Like, I, I know, I mean, you've, you've worked with everybody. Where, where you were like, you know, that's who this guy is. Like, I never, you know, like De Niro or Pacino or, you know, or Pryor or any of those. Well, that's a great moment with De Niro. We're shooting Awakenings and we're, we're, you know, we're doing a scene where I'm taking him to the Bronx. He's on the medication and we're taking him in a car in the yeah. Bronx for the first time out of the hospital. We do one take and I'm driving around for another setup. And all of a sudden this old black wino sees him in the front seat and yells out, Hey, Bobby, you still like black pussy? <laughs> <laughs> and then all of a sudden we give him rolling. And he's just like, mm. he's laughing so hard that it's just like, oh, my God. My other favorite moment is... uh with Jeff Bridges, we're, in, we're shooting a scene and something screws up and he says to me, he said, it's okay, it's a gift. If something screws up, you know, it's like the idea that it's a gift. Don't be afraid of it, you know. It's like that idea of every time when you're making a movie, that forces you to make something special that you didn't plan. To and get it real. Yeah, so real, but also, you know, you're in that moment and you're forced to deal with it and deal with it together with the other actor. And with him, it was a blast because you're like, you know, you're playing off of someone who's so good that's why when he won, finally, it was like, dude, you know. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's high time. He deserved it so many oh, other times. Oh, big time. You know, he's one of those guys who's just like cranking away, doing great work, and finally went, no, take anything off the top shelf. Yeah. You know, the bottom line for me with comics, and like you said, about the bitterness or whatever, you just realize it's the world, and you also start to realize, I, I know it's out there, but I still enjoy doing this. I still enjoy performing. And, you know, say what you say. It's all right. Does it still, does it kind of sting sometimes? Fuck yeah. But it's also, I still love doing this. I'm not going to stop because all of a sudden you're going, you fucking hack. I went, I may be, but I love doing it. You know, I like, and I, occasionally I'll find something and I'll go, um, I think it's good. And I'm getting more, like, when you see you, like you said, you go through your bitter phase and you come out the other side and you go, I just want to talk about this shit. Yeah. The, the thing is, is like about all that, you know, how people define comics and, 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 and their bitterness, the, the, the consistency that you have to light up a fucking room. But just to, I mean, just to go on and just to try to light it up. And people room. are just sitting there waiting. When's Robin going to, you know, open it up? And then, you yeah. know, you always deliver. Is that something you, is well, that? For me, it's a fun thing to say, open it up is the idea. That's the operative word to say, if that's what you're looking for to go to find that moment where you can like you get it and then when you don't get to open up it's a bit like okay didn't get that moment tonight but maybe you will it's like it's like open field running for a running back well all of a sudden there's the there's the hole they, they broke through and then <laughs> yeah, you can yeah, yeah, do yeah. it and you found it I've seen you do that too where you look and you got an idea I think it's the idea of why do we do it because it's there but it's also that's still that same desire it started off going love me, but now it's into something. Uh, I'm okay. I'm gonna still do it. You know? The one thing I'm trying to get rid of is that it starts with love me, and then I'm like, do you still love me now? <laughs> oh, well, I love you. Did the thing about you said the thing about our old Jesus if he'd lived. Oh yeah, bitter Jesus. Bitter Jesus in the water Maybe up to his ankles. I used, I used to be able to walk. Well, that's a but it's like an amazing you know, gift that I I don't really you know like when people talk about stand up like I don't know where it comes from. I don't know where the jokes come from. I don't know how I stand yeah, up there you know, and get the but laughs. It's the weird thing of when it when it comes from that place you don't know when you find a new thing isn't it a bit like it's like a high and, a, and like an endorphin 
what the fuck moment? Well, yeah, I, I think that I, I, you know, I do what you do, and to some degree, is that like a lot of times I just have ideas and I'll start talking about them on Good stage time. and wait and hope something's delivered. You're literally cornering yourself. In, in a situation yeah, in front saying, of people yeah. that you have to be funny to get out of this. Yeah, and you're saying, okay, I'm going to go on stage and I'm going to I'm going to find it because you're going to help me find this. Right, right. And if I feel comfortable, and you're going to empower me to break through. Right. And, and if it's a, if it's an intelligent audience, you're going to help me. And if you're a drunken late night fucking bridge and tunnel crowd, I'm going to beat my brains out, and it's not. And you're going to end up doing a date joke. Good that's luck. right. Yeah, that's right. But it's the idea of you're hoping for. That moment of you're going to help me through this, and that's the moment. You know, and then you just hope, like, I hope I can repeat that moment. Big time. I can put that magic in the bottle. <laughs> you know, how, <sighs> how the fuck do I do that again? I'll be back. Yeah, I can find myself. So, are you are you happy? All right, are you all right? Yeah, really. I mean, divorce uh, done, done, and you know, dealt with. With I mean, I think as much love as we can do with that situation, and being around her, being around my kids is really much more like I love you guys. I live separately, but I'm okay. You know. How old are your kids? Twenty-eight now, yeah, twenty-one almost, and eighteen. So they're old enough to understand. Oh, way, way old enough, and also to know that they're going. You seem better. I mean, like they seem because I'm not like, hey, you know. They, I mean, it's difficult for them, but they're all like they've dealt with it. It's, I used to do a, a bit where I'd say, uh, you know, I just uh, I never recovered from my parents' divorce. I was thirty-five. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it must be. I mean, it, it must be very hard because you know the whole idea of the unit. Yeah, you know, the unit is now two separate. Units. But if you guys aren't, if there's not hostility and it's done, it's no, done. no. I mean, that is pretty amazing on that level. And, and you have like, someone new in your yeah, life, yeah, wonderful person, and living here in this, you know, this place. And I'm, you know, pretty much like, okay, it's a different game. You know, the idea of going back out on the road right away. No, I'm all right right How's now. How's the heart? The heart's good. The new, the new valve, the yeah. cow valve, which yeah. sounds like a Chris Walken routine. More cow valve, but it's like, it's working. And as someone said, I was talking to somebody saying, like, you realize that you've had so many second chances with, you know, number one, the alcoholism coming out of that, and then the heart surgery and divorce and all these different things going, there's a lot to talk about, my friend. And yeah. And you come out the other side going, what's to be angry about? You're alive, fucker. Right. You know? There was that, because I heard you talk about it on uh, Kimmel's show or, or something that, because I noticed it with Letterman, too, is that after his surgery, the vulnerability. Oh, he leaned over to me at one point when we were... Uh, Who, Kimmel? Or Letterman? No, Letterman leaned over and said, do you find yourself getting really emotional after this surgery? And I started to go, yeah. I started to cry. <laughs> Did you? And he, yeah, and, he, and he said, we're back. And I went, oh, fuck, I'm not going to break down. I'm not going to pour a Barbara Walters. But... It is, I think, you get more emotional because literally they've cracked the armor. You know, you've all of a sudden, you know, guys are like, fuck you, man, I'm armored up. And in the moment, you just feel you open and it's like literally you are, you know, you have this scar here that they opened your ass up and literally to the world went inside, fixed the box and then sealed you back up again and said, you're back. You it's know? wild that that box is really is connected to the, that, that the heart is really the heart. Huge. And, that, and to that and how... How men, I mean, I don't know if women protect it as much, because they have the fun pillows, but yeah. it's the idea of guys will be like, you know, you'll see a guy toughen up like that, you know, why right. they like that. The, body, then, the typical body language of when guys get tense is like, yeah, you yeah, yeah. me, they suddenly tighten up here and yeah. tighten up and hackles on the neck. Right. right. And then when they crack that open, did, 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 did it stay with you? I mean, you are conscious oh, of it? Yeah, you're, you're very conscious because there's wires and shit. And you're literally like, you're so vulnerable in a weird way. And the drugs they give you are so powerful that you wake up going, I went, where am I? Cleveland. Why? Yeah. Heart surgery. Oh, oh. fuck yeah. 
The drug they gave me for the surgery was the drug that Michael was using to sleep on. Right. Michael Jackson was taking propofol as basically for sleeping, and one doctor described this. He said it's like taking propofol for a, to, as a sleep for a sleep disorder is like doing chemotherapy because you're tired of shaving your head. It is so fucking insanely powerful drug that it's designed for surgery. Right. And no. the fact that somebody was administering to this, administering, even though it was a doctor, said you're administering basically the, the most powerful anesthesia there is. Now, did you, like, before the heart surgery, were you somebody that was hung up on that? The mortality no. element? Oh, like, no. I literally, I went, they found it. I didn't go in going, yeah, you do this. What are the odds? I, I knew with the doctor I picked that the odds are really great. He'd done 4,000 surgeries. All of them had done, have gone well. I didn't know the after surgeries, but the idea that the idea of dying under the knife with with a valve replacement is really small. But is it there? You go, yeah, is it a possibility? Everybody around me was like, oh, God. You know, I went, I made the choice. Once you make the choice, you've gone like, I'm I'm in. You know, I, this is going to be better because right now I'm flapping in the wind, you know. And the idea of, you know, if you ca- didn't have the surgery, then you really are playing dice, you know. So, but when before you had the heart problem, I mean, you, you, you don't seem to me someone who's like morbidly fascinated or no. or, or, or hung up on death. No, so, I mean that's weird. I mean, when I was drinking, there was only one time, even for a moment, where I thought, "Oh fuck, life!" And right. And I went like, <laughs> then even my conscious brain went, "Did you honestly just say fuck life?" I went, "You know, you you have a pretty good life as it is right now. Have you noticed the two houses? Yes. Have you noticed the uh, the girlfriend? Yes." Uh, you, have you noticed that you know things are pretty good, even though you may not be working right now? Yes. Okay, let's uh, put the suicide over here on discussable. Let's leave that over here in the, the discussion area. We'll talk about that. Do uh, first of all, you don't have the balls to do it. I'm not going to say it out loud. I mean, have you thought about buying a gun? No. What are you going to do? Well, like cut your wrist with a water pick? Maybe. So that's erosion. What are you thinking about that? So, can I put this over here in the? What the fuck category? Yes, let's put that over here. What the fuck? Because can I ask you what you're doing right now? You're sitting naked in a hotel room with a bottle of Jack Daniels? Yes. Is is this maybe influencing your decision? Possibly. Okay, we're going to put that over here and tomorrow morning. And who's that in the bed there? I don't know. Okay, well, don't discuss this with her because she may tweet it. Okay, this may not be good. Let's put that over here in the what the fuck category. We're going to put that over here. Possibly for therapy, if you want to talk about that therapy, if, or maybe a podcast yeah. two years from now. <laughs> you want to talk about it in the podcast? No, I feel safe. Are you ta- you're talking about it in the podcast? I know. Who is this? It's your conscience, asshole. Oh, okay. So, do you, have you ever thought about it since then? No. During the surgery, were you thinking about death? No. Why? Because you just were thinking it's gonna, everything's going to be fine. Was that your mother talking? Maybe. She was a Christian scientist who had plastic surgery. Is that a mixed message? Yeah, that is. Okay. Well, we're going to go back to the podcast now because Mark's sitting here. But we're talking now. It's going to be, I know it feel like golf commentary. But, you know, look, Tiger's back. Tiger's playing. Tiger's doing well. I was hoping that some of the tweets would have golf metaphors like, you know, choke up rather than choke. You know, or, or like, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold you down and putt from the rough. No, he didn't say that, you know. It's all good. We're back. Thank you. That was wonderful. Thank you. It's a nice, uh, a nice interval. A nice interval. Uh, discussions yeah, yeah, yeah. of death. <laughs> it's very freeing. Thank you. Yeah, but that, I guess it's a little, you know, you've had all this stuff and that you know, there really is a certain degree of like, it doesn't matter. Big time. It just doesn't matter. That's, a, that's the kind of the freedom, the, the ultimate freedom of letting go in a weird way. 
like when you talked about all the stuff of you know the shit that they say about you. And I know it's out there, and it used to be it would it would immobilize me. Now, it would hurt your feelings. Oh, it hurts everything. You're just going to go, well, I shouldn't perform. Then going, no, you love performing. Go out and perform. People will say good things. People will say bad things. It's the nature of the world. It's like you said, if, it's like Tina Fey once said, if you're ever feeling really good about yourself, there's this thing called the Internet. Now, at this point in your life, going on stage, being around people you have a good time with, and, and seeing people like Pearl, seeing people like Overton, and, and hanging out with friends, and you go, oh, God, and, and hanging with you, even when we're at the comedy cellar, going upstairs and just riffing, go, that's worth it to me more than worrying about, oh, how am I doing? I got the gig. I remember one night sitting with Rodney Dangerfield, and he was, he was, I think he was doing blow, but he was going, I'm sweating. I don't know why I'm sweating. I own the club. You know, it's like, it's weird. It's crazy. And he said, Robin, when you look in the mirror, how can you say you look normal? <laughs> and at that point, he had like a weird kind of afro, kind of a Jufro yeah, thing yeah, going yeah. Rodney, I don't know. Don't tell me it's weird. Yeah. Joe, Joe says I'm a celebrity. My dog's looking at me, and Joe answers said, "Because you're a celebrity, Rodney." But it's that weird thing of you got the gig at this point. I mean, all that other stuff is like, and and you live like a, a person up here. I mean, like you, know, you live like up here because there's no. Uh, well, there's this idea that celebrities like. I mean, there is a rarefied, rarefied air to it because you guys can't hang out with everybody. You can't. But you up here, up and living in Marin, which is kind of like you know north of San Francisco, is like. The idea, I mean, if there's a paparazzi here, he's, uh, he's, there's one, and I right. don't know where he is, and he's probably wandering around. But it's not ostentatious, it's comfortable. You know, it's comfortable. You know. I mean, that's basically life right now. It's the idea of, this is it. I don't need to live. I can't. I mean, I don't do well in L.A. if I was living in a gated community. Yeah. You know, even yeah. though this is down a little hill. and, and But all these people, they've got neighbors, and they got kids, and they run around, and it's, it's okay. It's like when you go to New York. You know, the moment you walk on the streets in New York, you get good, you get bad. Hey, you suck. I love you. Hey, fuck off. You know, yeah, I ain't yeah. open the door for you. Yeah, yeah, fuck yeah. you. You know, that's the yeah. idea of where do you live now? Yeah, me? Yeah. I live up in uh, Highland Park. I live uh, in a small two-bedroom uh, cabin-like house overlooking the barrio of East L.A. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> and if I, it depends how I, I want people to experience the ride over. If I want them to experience Juarez, I say, come down York. <laughs> 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 if I want them to experience this, the upper middle class. That's for me. It was like when I come to L.A., I had a friend who said, you know, you don't know L.A. except for Beverly Hills. Yeah. L.A. All of a sudden, you go down lower Melrose and you get into this other area. It's oh, like, yeah. Oh, fucking A, dude. Yeah, it's, it's all That's there. where I found this bike shop. I went, this is my shop. Yeah. Single what is that about the bike thing? You spend How much time you spend in France a year? I haven't been there in the last since Lance quit, so it's been a while, and since they trashed Floyd, so I haven't been back. But I, I've been going to. Oh, you don't have a house over there or anything? No, never. I Are wish. you not doing the Belzer? No, the Belzer. Yeah, uh, he's out there. Zul. Yeah, yeah. That's he's a weird a thing. To live in France, I, I don't think I could. I like visiting there. It's Belzer, Arkham, and uh, Johnny Depp. That's the <laughs> oh, yeah, expatriate community that's over there. That's a great my dinner with. <laughs> yeah, I'll say. Fucking A. Well, you know, I thank you for the time. I'm glad you're feeling well. Me too, boss, and thanks for coming here. Thanks for making it easier than having to, you know. Where are you going? There's a hotel in the city. <laughs> no, no. <Yeah>. Mr. Man, <laughs> yes, we are here. Mr. Morgan, I lobby for you. Well, said, I th- Come on now. That's what I thought. Like, you know, thank God this is organized. I didn't want to have like a, you know, king of comedy moment where I'm in your house. It's like, <laughs> he's touching everything. Yeah. <laughs> Rest in peace, Robin Williams. You are missed. And thank you, Dave Itzkoff, for uh, for talking earlier. And thank you for writing the book. And um, I had no music today. You've, 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 it's okay to just sit with this. Boomer lives! <laughs>